In this episode, I travel to the tropical island of Koh Phangan in the kingdom of Thailand to visit recurring podcast guest Damarato, a lineage teacher in the Thai Buddhist tradition who is known for his unique one-on-one teaching style conducted over Skype. I visited Damarato's home and over the course of two days engaged in discussions with him about his life, practice, and teaching. This video is the record of that visit. Damarato shares stories of his childhood in the American South, where he faced conflict and racism that influence his worldview today. He recalls his time in Anna Arbor, where, immersed in the New Age movement, he studied with a witch and attended meetings with the Indian Siddha Muktananda. Damarato unfolds his approach to teaching Buddhism and addresses commonly misunderstood topics such as the Eightfold Noble Path, Stream Entry, Paticca Samupada, the power of placebo, how to deal with malicious people, the importance of Sangha, and more. So without further ado, Damarato. So I was passing through Bangkok on my way back from Bhutan, and I thought, let's come down to Kopanam to visit one of my most popular guests, Damarato. Although my first job is to find him. <laughs> Hey, I found you. Yes, here's the stairs. Oh, gotcha. Okay, Rocky. You know it's okay. Hello. Hello. Come on. Nice to see you. Good to see you. How are you? Wow. Sit down. Yeah, me too. I was saying it's so cool to actually meet you in person, to be here together in Copenhagen. You know, in all of our discussions, I think we never got, in terms of your biography, past um, your time in the Wat with Bhikkhu uh, Buddha Dasa. How did, what's, what happened between the Wat and here? Where are we? What is this place? And how did you end up here? This is home. <laughs> Lucky was born here about six, seven years ago. Pumpuri showed up with us as a puppy in 2013. Uh, the time between 2008 and 2013 was, uh, let us say, a whole lot of business in the United States with my mom's uh, rest home. And, mm -hmm. and whatnot. But after I uh, finished uh, getting what I thought was the business up on its feet without needing me anymore, I came to Thailand again to stay, and then kept going back to the United States to keep fixing things up, and then finally in 2013 I recognized that uh, uh, because of the let us say the uh, the discussion between the Democrats and the Republicans during the Obama administration, the Democrats won and the Republicans lost. Mm -hmm. And what they lost was that the Republicans were illegally using Medicaid money to house uh, 
the elderly and uh, the uh, people who years ago would have been in a mental institution. Mm -hmm. But in North Carolina, they mixed the two. Mm -hmm. And so that was the business that my mom was in, and I helped her with that. That's the reason that I disrobed was because uh, she got into a very bad automobile accident. And, I knew that I couldn't continue working on doing her business for her without disrobing. It was a moral or ethical kind of thing to do. So that's basically it. Then in 2013, I closed the place down because the state wouldn't support their residents anymore. Mm -hmm. When the Medicaid money ran out, the uh, state's answer to that was basically lump it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of places went out of business in North Carolina, which was okay for the North Carolina state government because then they didn't have to house the people anymore. They told them to go home. <laughs> That's the long-term care industry for you. That's the retirement industry in North Carolina. So, I didn't do that anymore, that's 2013, since then we've been here on the island. Mm -hmm. how, do you, how did you support, how do you support this? You moved in to this place in 2013? Uh, well, years ago I had a job and mm -hmm. I got Social Security built up mm -hmm. and I couldn't possibly survive in the United States on Social Security, but here in Thailand I lived like a king. With money left over. Yeah. <laughs> oh, great. That's great. So that's all there is to it. So. Yeah. And so when you were, when did you start um, in that timeline, going on Skype, talking to people on Skype? When did that start? Actually, that was Achan Po's idea. Um, Achan Po. <sighs> for many, many years has been giving me marching orders. You go here, you go there, that kind of thing. And, and uh, uh, it, it came to, this was actually in 2014, 2015 time period when I had moved back to the South and was spending more time uh, at Watson Milk with Achan Po. Um, and he knew that I had spent time in Chicago at the Watt there, and so he wanted me to go back there. Uh, but also the head monk there, uh, Vivisak Viridamo, had already moved to Phuket and so he wanted me to go help him in Phuket. Uh, but during those discussions of uh, where to go and what to do and all of that, the idea of doing it online came up and he uh, it was actually kind of his idea. Mm. Uh, but doing it exactly on Skype with exactly the format, that's kind of evolved, but it, it was all his idea to start teaching the Dhamma uh, on the internet. And the whole point was the issue of teaching the Noble Dhamma mm. as opposed to the ordinary Buddhism that is well known in the West already. Mm -hmm. uh, that. The general way that it's been done for centuries uh, is that you give an ordinary dhamma that's full of rules and 
mystery and all of that kind of stuff to the children. And then, if they're lucky, they could grow out of that into the real Dhamma. Mm -hmm. And so it would be then quite natural when Westerners come by without a clue to treat them all like children. And they begin to all act like children. They already did act like children, and so there was no problem with giving them precepts and rules and meditation retreats and all of that kind of stuff. But uh, uh, the whole point with Bhikkhu Buddhadasa was is that it's time for Thailand to come out of the ordinary into the Noble Dhamma, mm -hmm. and he has been doing that publicly for years. I think I mentioned to you that he had gotten into uh, uh, quite a lot of, uh, let us say, Sangha hot water with the Sangha de Sessa <laughs> by teaching the Dhamma uh, to the wrong people. But he's been doing that in Thailand, and he's been dedicated and was dedicated to teaching in Thailand for all of those many years to teach the Noble Dhamma, and he has had a huge, wide opening. Many, many millions of people who, especially here in South Thailand, because he's from South Thailand, uh, he's well known. Um, in the old days, when he was still alive, many of the houses would have his photo up with uh, uh, the uh, uh, shrine that almost all the houses have. Mm. Uh, but since he's died, we kind of use a living monk. Whoever's alive, uh, uh, the monk that we have inside there is one of the monks over at Wat Po here. Mm -hmm. And over there in that house, uh, Mr. Arsum lives, and Mr. Arsum is one of the, he's in the family that's the original landowners of, of the island. And I know several of his uh, relatives, in fact all of the relatives are, are around here, and he's kind of the custodian or the boss of Wat Po. Mm. He'd call himself a, dis, uh, a custodian, everybody else would call him the boss. <laughs> And so, if you look carefully, you can see that there's a big building yeah. uh, beside the house yeah. that, that is, uh, 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 let us say, the storage area for big tents, hundreds of chairs, and all of that kind of stuff. A stage, they've got a portable stage. They take it down and put it away, and then they'll take it up and use it for various uh, things like that. And so, that's one of the first things that we talked about, was Bhikkhu Buddhadasa. If I come and mention Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, I'm right through the door. <laughs> that's, all, that's almost like the magic password. Mm. So Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa was teaching the Noble Dharma uh, and gaining a great following. And so Achan Po says that it's time to bring the real Noble Dharma to the West. And so that's what we're doing on the internet. Mm -hmm. I'm not the only one or the only Parang who is, uh, let us say, fascinated or devoted to Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. Uh, Santikara is well known, and also uh, oh, Robert Becknell and uh, uh, Donald K. Swearer, who is a PhD, he's written a lot of highfalutin stuff, and then there's Christopher Titmus, so there's mm -hmm. other teachers who uh, teach, but they're all teaching in the normal moving to the mm. 
super mundane or the noble dharma. And Archon Po says, no, we're going to right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Brand new student. We don't talk about ordinary things. We immediately start talking about the noble dharma. Are you uh, in contact with those other teachers? Um, Christopher Titmus, uh, for example, the, these other teachers that you listed, are you aware of each other? I would say, yeah, we're aware of each other, simply because of the publicity and notoriety and whatnot. Mm. I knew Santi Caro, mm. and uh, the last contact was a couple of years ago. I sent a donation. Um, the others I haven't done anything much with. I have been in contact with uh, Christopher Tiffins also. And how was that contact? Uh, let us say that he uh, is still engaged with teaching the ordinary Dhamma. Mm. Yeah. What would, how, how would he put that, you think? I'm not sure I want to get into that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, what, what I really want to ask you about actually is, um, you know, this Skype teaching you're doing. Um, you've done, I don't know, how many hours? Have you ever estimated how many hours? Pardon? Have you ever estimated how many hours of Skype teaching you've done? Skype mm. conversations? Not particularly, Yeah. no. It's a lot. I don't keep track. I do know that there's over a thousand videos, but that's all. I've got some friends who help with that. Yes. The guys behind the Dhamma Dudes channel, right? Noah mm -hmm. and so on. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm wondering uh, what kind of, um, I suppose, skillful means you have discovered doing so much Skype teaching. I've heard you say that you, uh, when you talk with people on Skype, you, you talk them into the first jhana without them even realizing it. Pardon? I've heard you say that when you're on Skype, you talk people into the first jhana without them realizing it, yeah. for example. Yeah. Well, that's because there's no big deal. Yeah. You see, the Western mentality is that this is an attainment, it's a big deal, then people want it, and because they're wanting stuff, they're actually in a state of dukkha, and so how do they get out of that? Well, they get first John, and well, how do you get first John? You want it, and because you want something, you're in dukkha. You can't have it, okay? So that's why there's a catch-22. So you have to do it the right way, and the right way is satisfaction. Hmm with the way that it's presented in the suttas, not the way that it's taught in Western Buddhism. Mm. Well, every, almost every jhana approach that's taught in Western Buddhism involves accumulating some degree of concentration power. Uh, sometimes a little, sometimes a lot, but this is not the way you're thinking about jhana at all. Can you well, explain? What do you mean by the word concentration? If you mean concentration in the sense of coming back, and coming back, and coming back, and coming back, 
and coming back and coming back. That's kind of concentration, but that's not what people think of. But that's the kind of concentration that we're teaching here, is the repetition to keep coming back and come back and come back. But we don't use the word concentration that way, repetitive. We use it in the sense of pushing and pushing and pushing and this is concentration. If I concentrate hard enough, I'll be able to touch it. Well, you're already touching it, man. <laughs> yes, so the problem is the language that we use. And concentration is one of the major problems rather than consistency. And if you concentrate and work really hard, then you're then you get the mind tired, you wear things out, and then we're exhausted. There's the additional quality of in Western Buddhism, they have the idea that the longer you sit, the better. To where generally the mind is not fresh if you've been sitting for a while. And yet when people sit down, they sit down for an hour. Oh, I've got to do this for an hour. And we'll lollygag for a while. And then we might do it a little bit. But now we want the bell to ring and we want this all to be over. And that's a typical meditation for most. So it's better to have it much more shorter, but do it much more often throughout the day, like six, seven, eight times a day for about 10 minutes. Because in 10 minutes, you can say, I've got 10 minutes, let's do it. Let's get into it. Let's find that state of satisfaction and work with that right here, right now. That's the way. And so long sitting time so that you can concentrate. Actually, people just get dull. They call that concentration. There's also the issue about noting noting and noting and they say well note what and the answer is you know whatever is there so if dukkha is there then that's what we're doing we're just wallowing in our own crap mm -hmm. and that's what mahasi method is all about until you wallow in your own crap so deeply you have a dark night and then finally you recognize Wait a minute, this is not the right, right way to practice. I've got to actually put some effort into this. And that's step 11 on the 16 stages of insight. And then step 12 is the Eightfold Noble Path and the Four Noble Truths, step 12. That's where we start. Mm -hmm. We don't start with step one and two and three and four and five. And then six is fear, misery, disgust, despair, and a great longing to get out of it, then is when we finally realize, oh, I do need to get out of it. And that's the change of lineage, is to get out of it. Well, why don't we just get out of it from right from the beginning? Mm -hmm. So can you describe, this sounds like the heart of the supramundane mm -hmm. dharma, what you're saying right now. Mm -hmm. Can you describe how to practice in that way it has to do with change, to change what's happening in this moment. To see what it is that's happening right now, to give an evaluation of what's going on in the mind in this moment, and then make a change, improve it, make it better. 
soul. The basic practice of the Eightfold Noble Path is to look, to investigate. When people think of wrong view and ordinary right view and noble right view, we don't understand that there's a distinction that we're changing it from a noun to a verb. That the noun is the wrong view is the hallmark, I can get away with it. And the ordinary right view is no, you can't get away with it. We're going to hire the police and the army and aunts and uncles and uh, teachers and anybody else in the community to make sure that you understand that you can't get away with it. And if that doesn't work, we're going to get a priest. And we'll make sure that you can't get away with it. Well, every child that, that is born, we're actually born as little monsters. We're born as animals. And the raising that we do to our children is to socialize them which means that we're taking the child out of the wrong view of I can get away with it, I can do anything I want to do, I can pull my sister's hair, I can do anything I want, and I can get away with it. And the socialization is, no, you can't get away with it, we're gonna make sure that you can't get away with it. We're even gonna have an eye in the sky called God to make sure you can't get away with it. Hmm? Okay, so, when we think of right view as that kind of view, we're missing the point because that's a worldview or a way of looking uh, as a noun. Well, what we're really intending for with the Eightfold Noble Path is to turn it into a verb. And the verb is looking, investigating, seeing what is real rather than holding viewpoints about what you think is real. Okay, so noble right view is real, but you gotta look. If you don't look, if you're not looking, you're gonna miss it. And the reason that people are not looking generally is because they think they already know. They've got a concept about it. They've got an idea already. And so why bother to look again? Well, that's part of right effort is to take a look. When do we do this? every time we can remember to do it. This is sati. Sati. Sati anapana sati, sati patana. Uh, sati is on the Eightfold Noble Path. Even the seven factors of enlightenment begins with sati. Sati is a big deal for the Buddha. And the way that you can talk about it would be that it doesn't matter what skills you have. If you don't remember to apply those skills, those skills are useless. So this is what we're going to develop. Number one skill to be developed is sati. What is sati? The idea of coming back and coming back and coming back and coming back. That's not concentration, it's repetition. And when do we repeat it? When we remember to repeat it. And when we do repeat it, what does that mean is, is that uh, to touch base, or basically is to touch base with the here now, to be in this present moment, to be in reality, rather than lost in thought. So we remember to look. Once we look, we can make a change. If we don't look, then we don't know what's going on. 
and so we don't see what to do. So within Anapanasati, the word is to gladden the mind or to brighten the mind, and in other suttas it talks about unwholesome thoughts. To see that the thoughts that we're having now can be improved. They're not, let us say, liberating thoughts. They're not satisfying thoughts. So let's change our thoughts from unsatisfying, bound up in the, in the concepts and in the precepts into freedom that has to do with being satisfied. That's the basis of it. And when we get that going, over and over again, these three things of remember to take a look and to make a change. To take a look, remember, to take a look and to make a change. These three things run and circle around each other. And as they do, they begin to build skills. And when the skills are developed, are under development, we add a fourth ingredient, and that fourth ingredient in the Pali is Samasankapa, which means it's actually translated wrongly as wrong as right thought, and sometimes it's translated as right intention. But most of those miss the point. The real definition of Samasankapa is attitude or intention, our leaning. We we have a, a propensity for liking things in a certain way. It's a habit, but it's nonverbal. We don't have to talk ourselves into saying, I don't like that. Then in fact, the I don't like that words is, is after the actual feeling of, I don't like it, right? So we're actually looking at the thoughts and the feelings that we have that are very quick, very fast. And that mostly from childhood, we're raised to be a victim that a tender infant can't feed itself, can't work, wash itself, can't do any of the things, can't put his own clothes on, and then when he can put his clothes on, now he becomes mommy's little helper or a student. And he's been, and he's got work to do. So in the first place, we're affected because we can't do anything, and then when we are able to start doing stuff, now we're victimized into doing that stuff. We're becoming socialized. So we stay victims many of us for our whole lives. Sama Sankapa is the quality of changing our attitude from being a victim into being a winner. A clear example of that is the word hard. A lot of people say meditation is hard. They say that because they've got the attitude of a victim. If they had the attitude of a winner, then they wouldn't use the word hard they would use words like, well, never mind, let's do it again. So, never mind, start again. Never mind, start again. We don't stay victimized by a failure. We change so that we can get the right attitude of, I could do this. Now, when the student comes to the point that he knows in this moment, a point that without a doubt in this time right now, that it doesn't matter what comes into my mind, I can throw that stuff out and come back to the reality of the moment. The Buddha calls that the first step that is noble, the first step of the path. 
the first step of soda pop is the the attitude of I can do this. I can become whole. I can unify the mind. I can come to a state of peace and rest and harmony. That's the Samasan Kappa that is often missing in most of the Buddhist teachings that I know of. In fact, the Eightfold Noble Path is often just kind of glossed over as a bunch of terms to learn that you're going to use as an answer to an exam rather than making it a lifestyle. Mm. And when you understand the Eightfold Noble Path correctly, it becomes this moment's lifestyle. Mm. That's it. That's all there is to it. Can you take us through this um, remembering to look and to make a change um, with an example, a typical example? Because I'm, I've noticed that many of your uh, conversations on Skype, people are, come to you with a problem or a challenge or something that's happening or a thought that they can't seem to apply that formula to. And you help them. Uh, and often it has something to do with uh, remember to look um, and make a change. Or it has something to do with this victim mm -hmm. idea. Uh, that sometimes it's not clear to that person how their predicament of, uh, can be, uh, how, or rather, how what you said can apply to their predicament. Mm -hmm. They say, okay, that sounds great, but my situation is different. So could you give an example of uh, uh, the sort of thing someone might come to you with and how, and how these things would apply to that? Just yesterday on one of the Skype calls, someone asked a very similar question. His question was, can you give me a recommend a video for me to watch so that I could see this process going on? And my answer to him was, is that all you have to do is watch what's happening because it's happening to you on a regular basis, sometimes 10 times a minute. And that if you just look at what's going on, you'll begin to see this that it, this applies to everyone and it applies to every situation because things are basically black or white depending upon whether you have a loser's attitude or a winner's attitude. There's not much, you know, if you say that we're going to draw a line between them, how broad is that line? Is that broad line a, a meter wide or is it five kilometers wide? Or is it a tiny little thing? So that you're either one or you're other. You cross over that line. It's an, it's an attitude change. And so when people come to uh, question things the way that you're talking about, that's coming from the position of being a victim of your own set of circumstances. But when we recognize that everyone comes as a victim of their own circumstances, then we're all the same. Everybody's the same. There's no big difference. And so in that regard, this guy's dukkha is not different from that guy's dukkha. Even if they're fighting with each other, the dukkha is in the fighting with each other. And they're both doing it at the same time. And yet they're both claim, oh, I'm not him. My idea is, is A and his idea is B and we're not the same at all, but in fact A and B is irrelevant and it's the feelings that they both have. 
So that's the point is, is that uh, we don't have to have a whole lot of different examples about what to do or how to apply this, because it's applied on every occasion, if you can remember to apply it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in that case, how would I apply it now? Is it easy to use me as an example? Would that be a good way? Well, I don't know what's going on right now. For me? Uh-huh. Well, I'm sitting here enjoying talking to you. I'm enjoying the breeze. I'm enjoying the images. I'm enjoying the discourse. So what's the complaint? I don't have one. There that's you go. That's why I asked for a hypothetical. Right. Okay. Well, they're not any of them are ever hypothetical because yeah. earlier today you were lost in the wood. Yeah. How did you feel then? You know, I felt fine. Then good. That's yeah. the whole point. But we have to keep checking mm. because you don't always feel fine. Mm. Mm. Sometimes well, you feel like a nut, sometimes you don't. Yeah. That's actually quite an important point about the path that most of the people in the West, they, and, and it, they have the idea that kind of comes from the way that we're educated, in the sense that you do this stuff, and then you take a test, and then it's over. And so now you do this stuff, and now you take a test. Or later, you graduate from the first grade, and then you go to the second. Or you graduate from primary school, and you go to middle school. Or you graduate from high school. And it's always about this idea of graduation, or getting a certification, or uh, getting, let us call it, confirmation. And that if you get the confirmation, then you've got it. That in fact, uh, sometimes students will go to a teacher and say, oh, well, I did this, that, and the other thing in my mind while I was sitting in meditation. And the teacher will say, that means you're a soda pine. And so that guy gets up and he walks away saying, oh, I'm a soda pine, I'm a soda pine. And he may not be a soda pine for the next 10 minutes. He may, in fact, go back into an ordinary state of mind. That's the problem with the Western mentality is they think that once we've attained something, we've got it. Right. No, the whole teaching of the Buddha is about a Nietzsche. Everything is changing. Even the king who has a great big hoard of gold still has to protect it. He's got to have guards. Otherwise, that gold will find hands to walk away with. Right? That's just how things are. Things keep changing. And that when we have a wrong view or an ordinary right view, that's actually a kind of a view that doesn't change to where the investigation of what's happening right now, because things are changing at a fairly rapid pace. And so if we keep track of what's happening right now, then there's where we find our liberation not having some big event that happens in meditation and now I'm free for all eternity because, you know, things are going to change. Mm. The question is, when things do change, are you ready for it? 
rather than thinking all oh, things are not going to change now. Now that I'm a soda pond, I don't have this problem. Yeah. Well, <laughs> if you think so, you may get surprised. Well, you know, of course you do, that the, and it never changes, is a definitional part of being a Sotapan in many of the ways that that idea is presented. In other words, people will say, if it can go back, mm -hmm. it wasn't the real thing. Right. People will say that. Mm -hmm. But you're saying, actually, you're saying, actually, no, that's Just not the case. Just because a house fell down or burned down a hundred years after it was built, it was never there. <laughs> it's not the real thing. Yeah. It's not permanent. Yes, I know. That's a very, very Western mentality, a very Western concept, that things don't change. Yeah. That once you cross the finish line, you don't have any more races to right. win. Right. And yet, if you finish the finish line, or if you cross the finish line, how are you going to even get up to the podium to get your gold medal if you don't continue your journey? Mm. <laughs> you don't stop just because you've passed the finish line. Mm. There's more breath to take. So do things get, with the development of skill, the skill of remembering to look and to make a change? Which I assume means, uh, well, actually, maybe, maybe we can talk about that in a moment, but does the, uh, does it get easier? It At least less effort. The easy it always was. The not easy is the victimous mentality. But it's not easy. And it's not easy because you want it to be different. Okay. Uh, let us say that you go up to the, uh, uh, I guess they're like in, at McDonald's or fast food places, they have uh, ice cream machines. And it's got a chocolate and it's got a vanilla. And you walk up to the vanilla and you want chocolate. You turn the vanilla on and it's not vanilla, uh, it's not chocolate, it's vanilla. We don't like that, mm -hmm. okay? <laughs> the fact is, is that it would merely change over to here, but no, you've got, in fact, they're called Karen now on the internet. Yes that gets angry because they want it to be this way when in fact it's that way. And all they have to do is move from here to here, but they don't want to do that. They want to keep it, this is the way I want it to be. Well, that's the mentality that has to do with the idea of permanency, to where nothing is permanent, everything is temporary, which means you can change. Our culture teaches that you can't. That in fact, it's part of Christianity, it's part of the Christian culture that teaches that we can't change. They have scriptures about it. One of the scriptures in Romans says, who do you think you are as being good? Only God is good. I mean, you can hear that right there. The other one would be, um, uh, that unless you accept Jesus as your savior, thou shalt not be saved, right? That means that we can't do it ourselves. We have to have an outside thing because I, as I am, am not good enough. The only thing that I can do is play victim good enough. And if I'm a victim good enough and suffer enough, I'll get forgiveness, I'll get a free pass. And that's what our culture is built upon. And so the, the culture is, can I convince 
what good old whatever it is, that I've suffered enough so that now I can have my relief. But people don't even realize that, hey man, that suffering that you're wanting to be relieved from, you're causing it. <laughs> Another example of that would be if you don't follow the rules, you're going to go to hell. The point is, is that we create our hell. It's not that you're going to be put in hell by something else when you break the rules. When you break the rules, you already are creating your own hell. Especially if the rules that you're breaking are creating hell. <laughs> Makes perfect sense, you know. That we create our own hell and then we blame it on something else, somebody else. And if we're very, very good at blaming other people for our own problems, then we get big labels from the psychologists like sociopath, psychopath, narcissist, you know, those kind of labels. And it's interesting in the sense that people who are like that, who blame others for all of their problems, they don't respond well to psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. Psychotherapists know that sociopaths just don't make good clients. But also sociopaths and, uh, and those who blame others don't make me good meditation students either. In fact, they don't want to because it, it takes a certain amount of knowledge of dukkha and recognizing that there is dukkha in order for people to even start to practice meditation. So you have to have a little bit of noble right view in order to even try to practice, to begin to practice. That's a good point because your only other possibility is to blame somebody else mm -hmm. for all of your troubles, mm -hmm. which we do a lot in our society. Mm -hmm. We find enemies to make and blame it on him. So we've got Democrats blaming Republicans, and Republicans blaming Democrats, and the whole nine yards of it is all about, well, it's not my fault. We're, we're doing the best we could. If we could only get rid of those guys, then we could get something done. Mm. You know, why is it so important to be right? Why is, it, why is there this reflex to defend, one's, to defend ourselves always, even to defend ourselves against an impersonal situation, like being lost in the woods or something. There's a casting about for something to blame. We're looking for the word to defend ourselves has to do with the fact that we think that we need defending. Yeah. Which means uh, fear that a, a defense is the response to being afraid, to being fear. Well, if somebody has a thought and then becomes afraid, he will ignorantly think that that fear comes from the person that he was thinking about rather than his own thought. And so he'll blame that other person for the fear. For in fact, he's creating the fear himself, not the other guy. He just had a thought about that guy and that's the only thing. So that guy's got nothing to do with the guy's fear right now. That's, that's it. We blame somebody else for the, for the hell that we create in our own minds. Anapanasati is to say, hey, look, look at what you're doing. Look at those thoughts of fear. If you have thoughts of fear and then feelings of fear, see that connection. So that if you make a change, 
so that you have thoughts of safety and security, then you won't have feelings of fear, you'll have feelings of safety and security. So we have to change the way that we think. But in our society is, oh, I feel afraid because I'm thinking about what that guy will do. Let's go get him. If we can go get him and take care of him, then I won't have to be afraid of him anymore. We'll own the libs. <laughs> <laughs> so let's say uh, I'm lost in the woods, right? Because I got lost, I got lost in the woods <laughs> before I came here because I misunderstood your directions. And I started going off into the woods and I, I called you and got in touch with you. And uh, I sent you a photo of where I was and you said, that doesn't look like anything around here. Mm -hmm. And then I realized I was lost. So I have a few options at that point. Actually, it was fine. It, I, it didn't disturb me at all, but let's say it had, and this is certainly been this way in other times of my life, I might say, oh, I'm such an idiot for blame myself. I'm such an idiot for misunderstanding the directions or oh, I should have been checked more closely that I understood the directions. Or I could say, ah, Damarato, his directions were not good. Oh, they were terrible. Uh, well, <laughs> but let's just say, yeah. All he sent was a Google map. That wasn't good enough. Yeah. <laughs> What's going on here? So there's this sort of attempt to, I've got to blame someone, myself, you. Someone has to be at fault uh, somehow, mm -hmm. right? What, how does Anapanasati apply in a situation like that? What's well, my other option? To wake up to your fault finding. Mm -hmm. And say, oh, I don't have to blame anybody for this. I'm okay. Yeah, let me look at the jungle that I'm in here. Here I am. <laughs> yeah. And so we don't have to find fault. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is what it is. It just is. It. Yeah, that's it. Mm -hmm. That finding fault with it is not going to help the situation. No. That the right thing to do is to figure out what is going on right now, which is what we were doing, and then we've got a plan to get you out of it. Mm -hmm. And that's the right way to go. But if I blame you and you blame me, and we can be in an argument on the phone before yeah. we see each other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That happens a lot. Yeah. That reflex. Mm -hmm. The reflex of defense of, of and, blame. And again, that reflex of wanting to be right comes from the position of feeling attacked because we feel uncomfortable, and the feeling of uncomfortableness is fear like the fear I've done something wrong, which is the way that we educate our kids. We educate our kids to the fear of wrongdoing rather than the wisdom of wrongdoing. And so uh, because of the fear of wrongdoing, the, the Pali word for that, by the way, is hiri. And the word hiri actually means shyness or uh, embarrassment and so you don't want to be embarrassed in front of me and I don't want to be embarrassed in front of you and if we're fault-finding that's where that goes and and so everybody will defend and says oh no that's not me that's not me mm -hmm. it's not my fault not my fault and the fact is is there was no fault to begin with yeah no, there wasn't no a problem no. No, there was no problem, that's for sure. It was really no problem. No. But we've been taught 
to be problem solvers, to see things as a problem that need to be fixed. Where, one of the uh, common ways uh, in which Buddhism is presented is this idea of seeing through the illusion of the separate self. That's highly overrated in Buddhism, yeah. in Western Buddhism. It's highly overrated. Well, one way of thinking could be to say, on this topic we're talking about, and I've heard it said this way, uh, that no self, no problem. That part, part of the reason, uh, if I'm stuck in the woods, that I might look to blame myself or you or whatever, the, the Google Maps, whatever, is that um, it's this, it's coming from this misunderstanding of some sort of separate self mm -hmm. that needs, that misunderstanding <laughs> perpetuates itself by activities such as blame or myself and yourself uh, emphasizing this, etc. And that if one can drop that sense of self or see through it somehow, um, then the suffering will disappear something along those lines. So, <laughs> you're familiar with this presentation. I'm oh, curious yeah. what you think of it. Um, as I was starting to say, uh, the whole idea of anatta is misunderstood and highly overrated in Western Buddhism. And that I think that, or it appears that the, the big problem has to do with the translation error. Um, as you probably know, uh, it was uh, British intellectuals who started doing the Pali translations, that they ran across them in Sri Lanka. I think it was Riles Davies. No, it was uh, I.B. Horner. No, it was Riles Davies. <laughs> and so they both then went to India and did some more research and got all of this stuff together and decided that they were going to do their own translations of it. Neither one of them knew Pali, nor did they know any Buddhism. So instead of going to someone who did know Pali and English, and going to uh, someone who was a Buddhist who did understand, they decided to hook it. And so this is why there's so many bad translations. Because you can see, in fact, that, that uh, English translations have been completely Christianized. I mean, they call them a monk. They call them a nun. They call it a temple. They call it a monastery. <laughs> and that's just the beginning part. That's the easy one. It's the funny one, the one that I love the most. Is you see that bowl over there? Yeah. Okay, that's the bowl. That's not a monk's bowl. Because a monk's bowl is not a bowl, it's a pot. It's pot in the Pali, it's pot in Thai, and it's pot in English, and yet they translate the word pot into the word bowl because they don't want a pot on the altar of their Christian church. It's got to be a chalice, it's got to be a bowl, right? And yet if you look at the shape of the bowl, it's not a shape of a bowl, it's the shape of a pot. Mm -hmm. How could they have missed that translation? It's P-O-T right in the Pali. How could have they changed that into the word bowl? It's the mentality that they had. Okay, so that greatly affects in many of the other words 
that we have, like Vipana, Arahat, mm. uh, Sotapan, uh, many, many other words, uh, Samati and Dukkha are all badly translated. Dukkha is translated into suffering. Mm. We're not talking about suffering. If you took a Buddhist track and went down the street like a Jehovah's Witness, saying, here, read this, we'll help you stop suffering. How many people are going to slam the door in your face with the thought, or maybe the words, I'm not suffering here, get lost, right? So that just proves that dukkha is a bad translation because we understand the word suffering and dukkha is not suffering. It's much more like disappointment or unsatisfying, unsatisfactory. So there's many words that are translated incorrectly. Concentration comes from the word samadhi, and yet the word samadhi doesn't mean that at all. It means gathering the factors together, and the word concentration means to divide things up, to go actually after the core or the essence. And uh, an example of that is jhana is not a core or an essence at all. It's a collection of skills that are brought together. And so when we use the word concentration, we're missing the point. When we use nibbana in the sense that it's done like uh, the Mahapiri nibbana, the great one, the big city, uh, a heaven, all of that kind of stuff, they're missing the point. The point is about nibbana is when a dog is not barking, the dog is cool. Use nibbana. Mm -hmm. That it was used in the original for animals and cooking food and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, the dogs are all cool. They're nibbana. They're not barking. Mm -hmm. How about the human? Are we barking or are we cool? Are we nibbana? And we have that in English in the sense of chill, baby. Cool off. In Thai, they say Jayan, Jayan, cool heart, cool heart. Okay, so that whole idea then makes Nirvana or Nirvana way up there. Yeah. Rather than something that you could do right here, right now. So a lot of that comes from Christianity, which also comes from the concept that original sin. You're broken. You can't fix yourself. You need a Jesus. You need a savior. You need a psychologist. You need an accountant. <laughs> you need a lawyer. <laughs> and we need a priest. And so there's all this. We need this, that, and the other thing because we're not capable of solving our own problems. But when you recognize that you do have all the skills, to change your mind right this very moment, then that's the beginning of correct practice. Mm -hmm. And so we don't have to worry too much about all of these words that are used with, with Buddhism because most of the idea of Western Buddhism is actually it's an ordinary kind of Buddhism, not noble in general. So what does that how does that link back to anatta? Okay, let's go for that. Great question. Anatta should not be translated as no self or not self. In fact, the word self 
is irrelevant. That was the word that they chose to use because they didn't want to use the right word. It would be downright unchristian of them to use the right word, which was me soul. Mm. The Buddha talks about no soul in the sense that the idea of a soul is something that's so strong, so permanent, so everlasting, even though it's broken, it still is everlasting so that it even survives death. Right? That's the idea of a soul. And the Buddhist concept is, no, you can change. You're not fixed. You're not determined. You've got no destiny. There's no God's plan for you. You make your own plans. Why don't you make some changes to those plans? Because the plans you've been making and keeping are not all that satisfying. <laughs> and so that's where the problem with anatta is, is that we think of it as no self, when in fact we're not talking about that at all. We're talking about there is no inherent, long-term, permanent, individual person in there. Now the distinction would be between the Christians and the atheists is the Christians say uh, that when the body breaks upon, brings up on the point of death, you're just going to keep going on. You're going shooting right for heaven or hell, depends upon whether you're in the uh, first class or whether you're in the passenger section of this aircraft of the, you know, going to heaven. And the atheists say, oh no, on the breakup of the body, the existing being is annihilated. That when you die, you die. That in fact the Buddha was accused in his day of being that sort of atheist. That upon the breakup of the body, the, um, the existing being is annihilated. And the Buddha says, I don't teach that. That's not what I teach. What I teach both formally and now is Dukkha Dukkha Naroda. I'm actually kind of quoting right out of Sutta number 22 now, that he teaches, he doesn't teach annihilationism, nor does he teach eternalism. That if anything, he also doesn't teach nihilism, because nihilism would be wrong view. Eternalism would be um, ordinary right view, and atheism would probably be even a better ordinary right view because at least it has a bit of temporariness built into it. Where nihilism says, don't nothing matter. I'm going to do what I want to do. But the reality of it is, and the way of saying is, the teaching of the Buddha is that he is a temporarilyist. He's not a permanentist. He's not a, uh, an annihilationist. He's not a nihilist. He's just up and down. Sometimes you feel like a nut, sometimes you don't. That's the way of looking at it. That's what self is all about because self comes upon a combination of things. Now, one of the important teachings, and in fact, in Sutra number 22, uh, is referred to again about what you probably heard of the five aggregates. Have you heard of the five aggregates? Okay, the body. The feelings, consciousness, perception, and um, sankara, we would, uh, in English, to make it easier to understand, we'll think of it as our memory system. Our memories of 
of thoughts, our memories of visions, and our memories of feelings. That in fact, the way that we feel is just a habit. We feel the way that we're used to feeling. We have a thought about that, and then we have this feeling. When we think about that again, we have that same feeling again. They're, they're related. And then when we're really ignorant, we think that's me. That sequence of events is me. That this is who I am. And we have in our language words like, I am angry, or I am sad, or I am frustrated. But the reality is, is there is just sadness. There is just anger. We could go so far as to say, instead of, I am angry, we could say, I see anger. But then, who is it that sees? Is that to me? And the answer is better to say, anger is being observed, but there's no observer and there's no angry one there. It's just observing of the anger or the other possibility is just anger with no observation. So, uh, if we observe it from the perspective of that anger is not me, then we're going in the right direction because eventually we can also begin to understand that the one who sees the anger, not me. That's just the observational part of the mind as well as the feeling part of the mind. That I'm not the observer either. So, in that regard, we can say these five aggregates are the body, I am not the body. If you were the body, you'd be much more handsome. <laughs> but in fact, uh, most women, because of our culture, are taught that they're not beautiful enough. They need something new. They need Maybelline. <laughs> they need Gucci. They need something to be okay. Whereas they are not good enough. This is identification with the body. And look how many industries are associated with, with uh, the people identifying with I am the body. I mean, we have the fashion industry, the shoe industry, the bag industry. We have uh, uh, the health industry. We have sports. Uh, we have entertainment. We have dancing. All of that kind of stuff has to do with people identifying with the body. My wardrobe, my clothes. But you can't change the body, not much. Maybe a little bit here or there, but by and large, you can't make yourself 20 years old anymore. When you were 20, you couldn't control being 20, and when you're 21, you can't make it 20 again. That's just how things are. The nature is, is that you are not in control of that body. We kind of think that we are because we have some limited control but that limited control, when it becomes delusional, we think that it's me. Or in fact, no, it's not me. It's just the body. Well, so, some people, I think, would express it as, my body says something about me. For example, uh, I have to wear, I have to present myself a certain way with my clothing. Mm -hmm. uh, because it reflects on me, mm -hmm. or my, I have to have a certain level of health or aesthetic appearance, mm -hmm. perhaps through exercising, uh, because that says something about me, mm -hmm. that makes me more, which will make me more attractive, 
or people will think that I were uh, assigned to me more status or respect, something like this. So I, is that identification with the body? Yes. Or is that using the body as a means or venue of signaling about oneself? Well, we start that identification when we're very, very young. A two-year-old very, very much identifies with his body, that this is actually very much an investigation experience, is to begin to recognize that at best, whoever you are is only a guest in this body. You don't own the place. The delusion is we own it, where in fact, we're just a resident. Um, an example that's used in the old literature is the, is the idea of a carriage, and that the dude who's riding in the carriage, who paid the, uh, uh, the charioteer uh, to use his horses and his carriage to take somebody someplace, and the guy who is riding along as a passenger thinks he owns it because he's directing it for the moment. But after he arrives at his destination, he's got to get out of that carriage and the carriage is going to go off because it doesn't belong to him. And in fact, the carriage may get wrecked. <laughs> and so we don't own that carriage. We don't own the body that we're in. Along with that analogy, we can think of then the, the power to move that carriage, the horses, that's our feeling. And we often identify with the horses because they're pulling the carriage along. And then we have the mind, which is the driver. And the driver is driving it, and so the driver thinks that he owns the carriage. But in fact, if you think about it more likely, it's because the horses are pulling the carriage, the horses own the carriage, they're the ones who are pulling it around. And so there's a lot of um, ignorance going on, and when we recognize that I am not this carriage, I am not the feelings, I'm not the horses, I am not uh, the, um, the driver of this thing, that in fact, at best, I'm just a passenger who is under the delusion that he runs the show. And he doesn't feel that he's able to run the show. He's a victim. And so here we are, a victim, trying to direct a carriage around, and we're always running into a ditch. <laughs> well, it seems that sometimes these um, identifications aren't obvious until uh, as you put it, something, uh, the body escapes our, our apparent control. For example, becoming sick mm -hmm. um, or being unable to uh, wear the right sickness clothes. and death are yeah. the big three that and, the Buddha talks about. Right. Or, yeah, or old age, etc. Mm -hmm. And saying, wait a minute, who am I? My body is no longer um, matching. Myself, my my self-image, mm -hmm. right? I'm a fit person, but now I'm ill, and I can't the exercise anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and who am I? Can almost uh, produce a, an existential crisis. Some people, and it's not the suffering of the sickness itself, like the pain or a the fatigue. A lot of people, it's the when they get old, identification. they get really mentally ill. Yeah. Yeah. 
cortisol sets in, old age sets in, sickness sets in, and they hate it all. Yeah. Because they want it to be like it was when they were 20. Exactly. And it's not going to be. So what to do? Right. They're, so they're living in the past. Yeah. And they're suffering because they're living in the past rather than accepting the body's gotten old, it's gotten sick. So the right way to practice correctly is to know that your body's going to get sick. It's going to get old and it's going to die. Are you ready yet? Get ready because it's going to happen. Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa talks about that getting sick is a marvelous opportunity to practice. And he knows because he was sick for quite a while. So if we can see that, uh, that we are getting old, that we're not really the body. Because if we were the body, then we wouldn't get old. If we were the body, we wouldn't get sick. If we were the body, then we would be the weight that we want to be at, not the weight that the body is actually at. And when we accept the way that things are, then we can be much more satisfied rather than working, working really hard at the gym or whatever to make the body something that it's not. That's what we do. So we're not the body and we're not the feelings. We're also not our memory systems. We're not what we remember ourselves to be. That in fact, our memory systems is quite shoddy. We don't remember things. Many times people uh, will reminisce with each other about something that happened years ago and everything has changed. They don't agree on anything and yet they were both there. There's in fact a song in Gigi, the old musical, where uh, she's saying, I was dressed in blue and he says, you were wearing red. <laughs> I had my hair this way. No, it was that way. And they, you know, it's a whole song between the two of them to where, uh, and, they, and then they go to the chorus of, yes, that's the way that it was. And in fact, their memories are not at all the way that it was. We don't remember the things that things really were, and yet we rely upon that memory as part of our self-identification. So when you ask me about all the stuff that happened in the past, that really doesn't matter anymore. The question point is, is that, am I here now? That's whatever got me here is not important. The fact is that here we are, we've got here. There's nothing left, this is it. And so we are not our memory, nor are we the combination of our consciousness and that memory that we use to invent things called perception, that we perceive things, we make stuff up, we make decisions about stuff a lot. I've actually got a bone that's broken over here on the foot. You can see that mm. it's gotten red, that this carpet is not sufficient for the Should we change the position? And this leg is already asleep now. <laughs> so, okay. uh, in any case, back to the point of the um, body, feeling, consciousness, perception, and memory systems are not who I am, then who am I? Yes. Well, let's look at it like this. An easy example is a clock. An old style clock, an alarm clock that's got gears and uh, uh, a spring and a, uh, a balance wheel that goes back and forth and the mechanisms and the hands 
and the ticking of the clock. Is the ticking of that clock to be found in any one of those gears? Is the ticking of the clock in the housing of the clock? Where is the ticking? The ticking is, is the way that the clock works in combination. So the self is not in the body, the feelings, the uh, consciousness, the perception, and the um, memory systems. It's a combination of putting those things together in a particular way. If we put it together in one particular way, there is no self because we're doing things correctly. But if we put together the things incorrectly, then like the truck, the engine's gonna knock because it's not right and it needs to be set right. But that knocking is not the truck. Nor is it a, the knocking any individual part of that truck. The ticking of the clock is not a part of the clock. It's the result of the functioning of the clock. Just like the truck, when you have all the truck parts all over the yard, you've got the wheels over there and the steering column there and the, the chassis back in there and the motors over yonder, you don't have a truck. You've got car parts, but no truck. But when they're put together, now you have a truck because the whole point of a truck is transportation. So the cell that we have is like the transportation that the truck provides. But the truck itself does not inherently have any transportation anywhere. There is no place that you can take that truck and take it apart and find a piece that you can call, this is the transportation of the truck. It's not in the piston, it's not in the piston range, it's not in the gears, it's not in any particular place. It's a combination of things. That is what we mean when we talk about why, how the five aggregates fit into the teaching of Petitu Samapada is because you come there with five things that have no self and out pops the self. That's how it works. And guess what? The five combinations of things can be conceived and, and let us say put together slightly differently and now out pops something else, joy, rather than sadness. But the joy or the sadness or the self is not inherent within the body, feeling, mind, memory systems or um, uh, our ability to put things together. There's no self in any of that construction. In the old example, I use the word truck. Nargajuna used the chariot. And you know the chariot story. So this is the chariot story. There's no chariot there. What is chariot is the chariotness that's in the mind, the transportation that's in the mind of the charioteer. That's where the, the real chariot is. It's not in the chariot parts. The same thing is true with the self. The self does exist, but it doesn't exist permanently. It's based upon conditions. Sometimes you feel like a net, sometimes you don't. That's why the word or concept of anatta is so misunderstood, is because the Westerners, they either want it all the time this way or all the time that way, rather than recognizing that things are up and down. It's like, expecting the low tide to be low tide all the time. And sometimes we go to the beach and we say, oh, there's the tide. And then we come back 12 hours later and the tide's way over. How did it get this way? I thought the tide was out there. 
right? No, it changed. Everything is in constant motion. And so when we see things like that, what's the use of getting upset about anything? Because it's gonna change. I've heard that about weather. Uh, people say in this particular location that uh, if you don't like the weather, just wait a couple of minutes. <laughs> and you probably will get some weather you do like. This is a way of understanding self and not self is because it's a bad translation. The Buddha was talking about no permanent soul. But selfishness arises and passes away on a regular basis. I hope that that helps you to understand it from that perspective. That's yes. the noble way of looking at it. Uh, the ordinary way of looking at it, all I hear is no self, that means there's no self. Mm -hmm. And that's a, an ordinary way of looking and making a rule, oh, there's no self. This, it seems this, is, this uh, supports this idea of um, noticing and then uh, remembering to notice and making a change. Mm -hmm. This flexibility. If we don't expect, we can expect things to change. So the degree of suffering that comes from the disappointment in things not being as we wanted them to be or as we expected them to be first of all that shock is, is gone that sense of wrongness this is wrong should be some other way that's gone or unnecessary at we least. want it to be another way right we've had an idea that it should be another way but when we know it's it's interesting because when you're pointing out these five skandhas and uh, in any moment of dukkha it seems uh, one of these can be apprehended as the culprit. For example, uh, feeling, Vedana, mm -hmm. right? In this, I'm not sure what it is in Pali. Is it the same in Pali? Vedana, yeah. yeah. That's the, uh, the word. Now, liking and not liking. But it's not the same as uh, emotion. No. The emotion that you can see is more of tanha, upadana, uh, the woeful states that yeah. we get into. That Vedana actually is, remember I was talking about Samasankapa, the niggle, or the, just the very little light leaning? That happens with feelings also in the sense that we just have an, an, an initial, I like it, or an initial, right. I don't like it. And then we start spinning on that and turning it up from I like it to I want it to I gotta have it. That becomes the basis of further elaboration. Mm -hmm. So spotting that, liking or not liking, those tones mm -hmm. can unravel that elaboration. Yes, not just spotting it, but also taking the effort to start to change it, to stop having it, I don't like it, I don't like it, I don't like it, I don't like it, and to Maybe if I look at it from a different perspective, I will like it. An example of that is you hear two people arguing, and you don't like it, the fact that they're arguing over there, so you want to stand up and go over there and shut them both up, or better still, straighten them both out. <laughs> and another way of looking at it is, oh, 
the argument that they're having is not over there. The argument that they're having is here. I'm the one who doesn't like it. And if I look at that and say, I don't like this, then I can say, wait a minute, I don't have to not like it. I can actually become interested in what they're saying, or better still, I can feel really good about chilling out, knowing that the old way that I would do it would be going and interfering with that. And now I feel really good that I don't have to get my hands stuck into that tar baby. You know the story of the tar baby? No. Uncle Remus. Uh, Uncle Remus' tales were from uh, tales to the south from oh about the 1830s, 1850s. And so you can see that it gets really heavily wrapped up with racism, especially the movie that Disney did in 1948 that's now bad because it's racist. 1948, maybe not so much. Um, in the tales of Uncle Remus, there is a story about Burr Bear, Burr Fox, and Burr Rabbit. And Burr Bear and Burr Fox, the fox is smart, the bear is dumb, but goes along. So you've got a bully situation. And the fox and the bear find some tar, black tar. And so they fashion it into a tar baby. And they set it beside the road knowing that Burr Rabbit is so um, jovial and happy and whatnot that he's going to get stuck in this tar baby. And so the bird rabbit comes by and he says, how's y'all? And the bird baby, tar baby says nothing. And so the bird rabbit says, I said, how's y'all? Baby says nothing. And so he goes over and he gets angry and he hits that tar baby and he gets his hand stuck in the tar. And so he kicks him again with the other hand and he gets that one stuck. And so now he kicks him with one and then the other and now he's just full of tar baby. He's, all, he's got it all over him. That's when Burr Fox and, and Burr uh, uh, Bear come by and catch him. That's the story of our lives. <laughs> is there's just tar babies all around us. If we would just leave them alone and not get involved with them. So back to that issue of the argument that you see people having. That's just your tar baby. And if you can recognize him, you said, ah, there's my tar baby. And now I can feel really good. Before, I felt bad because I didn't like their argument. And now I feel good because I can see that that's just my tar baby. We can change the way that we feel. We're not permanently stuck. We're not a, a self or a soul in that regard. That in the beginning I didn't like it. That was my dukkha. Now I can see, oh, that's just my dukkha. That's just my tar baby. Don't get stuck in that one. And now I can feel comfortable and happy. Mm -hmm. But the victim doesn't see that possibility. The victim doesn't see that possibility. The victim says, their argument makes me feel bad. I've got to go fix them so I feel good. That's the victim's position. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's politics for you. <laughs> That's great. Should we take a break? Yes, I need to take a break. Okay, great. I'll pause. This is Hanahan. This is the kitchen. We have a new refrigerator. <laughs> Both Pam and I were very happy that the old one died. It came with the house. So we told the landlord that we're going to buy our own, so don't get unhappy when we take it off if we ever move out. And so it works. It's a good refrigerator. 
I've never seen one so big, so Tam picked this one out and I thoroughly approved. Here is the home non, the bathroom. Normally mm -hmm. this is where the dogs live on a hot day because of the cool floor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this, this is the bedroom. It's a one bedroom house. Yeah. That's about all there is to it. Most of it's all outdoors. I spend almost all my time outdoors. Mm -hmm. So you come around here. Mm -hmm. This tree is alumni. All of these other are uh, banana. Behind that over there is uh, papaya. Uh, you can see a whole lot of big banana trees over there. That big tree up there also is alumni. And so um, the whole area is surrounded by what in Thailand we call swan. And a swan is not a farm and it's not a forest. It's a combination of the two. And so this is actually a forest because most of the things that are, uh, that are planting and living here grew naturally on their own and the humans come in and just plop stuff down beside it. Like for instance, all of this is natural. These two trees here, this one, and this one right here, are, are um, sem, sem trees, or sema. There's actually a sutta by the name of the sem. This is the, the sutta about the handful of leaves. And the Buddha was walking through a forest. You could see, in fact, that it's got yellow leaves on it. At that time of year, all the leaves had fallen and the whole forest floor was full of yellow leaves. And the Buddha picks up a handful of leaves and he says, which is greater, monks? This whole forest full of leaves or my handful? And they said, oh, the forest is much bigger. And the Buddha says, but this is all I have to teach. I only teach this much. All of those other teachings like rebirth and reincarnation and magic and all of that kind of stuff, somebody else's teaching. I only teach Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. That's the moment. Yet look at all of that other stuff that has come together in the form of Buddhism. Mm -hmm. There's actually a religion. But the Buddha, he wasn't very religious at all. Very practical. Mm -hmm. And so that's the tree that he was talking about. And so when you are, uh, this is where you do your Skype calls, right? Right here. How do you, does it work? Do you sit here and wait for someone to call? I know you have a lot of people calling you now, so I guess you, that would work. Or do you, do they, people make an appointment with you? How, how do you do it? No. What's your typical day? You wake up and what happens? Go back to sleep. <laughs> and wake up again and go back to sleep again and wake up again. You must at some point come out here, right? Yeah. Well, I would I mean, I'd wake up and come out here and go back to sleep and then wake up again. Are you sleeping in that chair? <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? 
<laughs> Basically, I'm just playing. Uh, I don't have any appointments because then that would put a responsibility for the future of both me and the student. Yeah. And if we don't keep the appointment, then both of us feel bad. Right. If you don't make any appointments, then there's no problem. No appointment calendar necessary. So people would just call you. If you're online, you'll take the call. And if I want to, I'll answer. And if I don't want to, I don't answer. Right. Mm -hmm. And how many hours a day do you estimate you spend on, on those calls? It varies. In the old days before we had the Skype videos, I would spend about 10 hours a day sometimes. Wow. Because people would call. But now that there's the videos, people don't hassle me so much. Because and they can watch that, the YouTube, right? But I've gotten famous, and so they're afraid to call. <laughs> Ta -da! You know, that's actually true. People sometimes have emailed me because I've interviewed you several times, right? And, um, and hopefully many more. And people will say, ask questions about you or ask questions about what you said. And I'll say to them, you know, you can call Damarato. And they'll say, really? Oh, I don't want to bother him. And I said, no, 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 that's what he does. I want to see you try. <laughs> come do it. Let me see you. Ah, come on. <laughs> try to bother me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they go, wow, I could really call him? That's, yeah, you can. It's not, that's not a, an act. That's really what you do. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the socialization that people have. Yeah. They think because if you find somebody else is important, if you bother them, they'll feel bothered. Mm -hmm. And so that means that everybody's going to be bothered. I can't bother anyone. We're not supposed to bother people, right? Mm -hmm. Well, how do you bother a person who doesn't care about whether he's bothered or not? <laughs> yeah. Being bothered is a choice. Your choice, are you wanting to be bothered? Then go ahead and have bothering thoughts and you'll feel bothered. That's your attitude. Mm -hmm. That's the, uh, only a victim can be bothered. Did you notice the geckos in the bathroom? I did. Got a whole herd in there. <laughs> <laughs> Your chap's going to settle down? Uh, she hasn't <laughs> gotten the point yet. Pumpuri <laughs> are lucky sitting down now. But Pumpuri hasn't figured out that now it's not scratchy time. Well, this is not it. We need some of those Vasudhi Magajanas for you, I think. What do you think? Would you like some Buddha Gosha? 
So you were telling me about placebo in meditation. <coughs> yes, actually the whole concept of placebos uh, has been well known gosh, many, many centuries. Mm -hmm. uh, but started being studied scientifically about a hundred or so years ago. Uh, and the more they studied, the more they figured out that they had to uh, design their research around it. Mm -hmm. That's what the whole point of why the half-blind studies or double-blind mm -hmm. studies is so that the people don't know whether they've got the medication or not to see if it works. And here is where the placebo issue comes in is that many of the people who don't get the medication but told that they did get the medication or are at least in the experiment with the medication, they get better. Yeah. And that uh, uh, one of the things that is quite a strange anomaly is the issue of spontaneous remission anyway, and that happens especially in cancer. Mm. And it happens a lot. And there's also the point about um, that basically we talk ourselves into feeling bad. Mm. That's where a lot of it is. Uh, my mom, I first learned about all of this as a child. My mom was what it would be a traditional hypochondriac. She'd take me and the ki and my sister and herself to the doctor at the drop of a hat. Never saw my dad go to the doctor. And uh, going to the doctor, I recognized that my mother had dragged me in here for treatment for things that the doctor can't do anything about, but I could. And so that's when I began to get interested in it, and then I found out that it was an entire field of research. And what we mean by the word placebo is uh, that the mental component is often overlooked, especially in situations like the pharmaceutical industry or medical science, that mm -hmm. they think that the science that the doctor is doing does all of the work and that the person who is having the stuff done to them is a passive, you know, like an engine overhaul. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet, uh, that's not the, the way at all. We have known for many, many centuries that it's the other way around, and that uh, much of that you could say is religion itself, but this is where religion comes from. Mm. Uh, is when people are dissatisfied with the condition that they're in, they want to make improvements. And the question is, what do they do? How do they do it? And, and uh, who do they go to, et cetera, like that. Uh, and so um, we can actually use that uh, as a practice tool to recognize that we do have that kind of control over our own minds if we, uh, let us say, remembered 
and operated the way that we mm. would if we would remember it. That we're we're in charge here. Mm. That you are your own placebo. You are your own medicine. The question is, is it going to work or not? The answer is up to you. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, uh, as I was mentioning before, uh, in the research of placebos, they found that, first off, the, the benchmark would be about 28%. But that can be uh, modified depending upon the attitudes of uh, the researchers. And that uh, the highest levels that they've ever had is up in the 40s, 40 percentile. Uh, if you give somebody, put them in, let us say you're going to be part of a, an experiment to uh, uh, help cure the deadly illness that you have, but you'll have to come into a hospital and spend a few days hooked up to all of this equipment with IVs and registrations and nurses going around and checking things and all of that kind of stuff. And that placebo effect goes really high because people really trust that all of this doctor stuff mm -hmm. is helping them get better. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, uh, if that's true, then wouldn't it also kind of be the case in certain cases where all one has to do to feel better is think about going to church? Because, I mean, after all, that's the whole idea of our society is, is that you get religion at church. Mm -hmm. Right, that you go there for worship and getting close to God and all that kind of stuff. So if we just think about going to church, that should get us brightened up if we know how to do it. Mm -hmm. And so this is a, an interesting way of understanding that perhaps meditation is nothing but the repetition of giving ourselves the medication that's really a placebo. And that all the rest of the action is the result of the taking of the placebo mm -hmm. as opposed to the placebo itself. Mm -hmm. And that, that brings an interesting point because we look at things like uh, joy as an example because everybody wants joy. They want gladness, they want happiness, or at least until they hear about Buddhism. <laughs> <laughs> but generally, and by and large, everybody wants it. But it, then, is kind of like an object. It's like the placebo itself that if I take and rub this bar of soap called uh, uh, joy all over my body, then I'll smell better, I'll feel better, right? And that's the, uh, the separation uh, when in fact it, uh, the joy is not an it, it's not a bar of soap, it's an attitude. That it's the attitude of taking something that's going to make us feel better, mm. not the, the item that we took. Mm. This is what they're finding in the, the, this, the rationale behind the placebos yeah. in a Buddhist context, context is, is that we, the mistake that we make is thinking that meditation is the object 
it's the placebo, it's the medicine, it's or the even the joy itself. It's an outside object and when I get what I want, joy, then I'll feel better. And that's not really what's happening. Mm. It's it's the receiving, it's the the gladdening, it's the internal process, it's the attitude change from the attitude of I need something into I've got it, which is also the attitude. This is, by the way, the Sama Sankapa that is so uh, often confused in the Eightfold Noble Path, which is that change of attitude from I need or I want into I don't need and I don't want because I've already got. I took it already. I took the medicine. Mm. It's, it's, it, it works. It's beneficial. So this is the whole point about the placebos then. It is that we can change our change our attitude, which is really what it is being changed. That was what it was all about. That in fact, uh, the uh, the testing from the disease point of view was actually what they were looking at is only the symptoms, not the actual cause. Mm. That the, the symptoms were there because ultimately of the attitude that I deserve these symptoms, or this is what I should be, or uh, poor me, I'm sick, and we get the benefits and all of that mm. kind of stuff out of it. To where if we have the attitude of, I can handle this, there's nothing to it. And so changing the attitude is a, is the primary ingredient, that, but we have to, to change that attitude repetitively over and over and over again so that's where the rest of the path comes in of remembering sati to make this change of attitude and to see look at what we're doing to really look at what's going on and when we put those th four things together right looking right viewing right attitude right uh, effort and remembering to do this we do those four things over and over and over again, that's what brings about the unification of the mind, mm -hmm. as opposed to being at disease or broken apart or in various ego states or another way of saying it is that the mind is a monkey mind, it's jumping around from place to place, so sometimes I'm this, sometimes I'm that, sometimes over here, and we don't see this jumping, all we see is the jump in the land of this time without recognizing that we're doing a pattern, that we're in a cycle here. This is the samsara mm -hmm. of, the, of that jumping around. So in that regard, we're the whole samsara, not just this particular piece of it. Mm. That's part of the unification of the mind that is brought about with the Eightfold Noble Path. I'm curious, when you were a child and your mother was taking you to the doctor and you said that you figured out you could actually fix some of these things yourself, what sort of ailments could you fix? 
Um, I'm thinking of minor scratches and things like that that just don't require medical oh. attention at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, my grandmother was kind of just the opposite. In fact, the joke is is that uh, uh, I stepped on something when in the chicken yard and scratched my foot, and I want mommy to kiss it and make it better. Right? So that's the whole idea: is to kiss it and make it better. And I've got chicken poop all over my foot. <laughs> Nobody wants to kiss it. <laughs> and then I recognize I can, I, I can make it better. I don't need mommy to kiss it. Yeah. I, <laughs> Can you tell uh, tell me a little bit about your upbringing when you were a child? What was the context of your upbringing? Well, I started off as a child. <laughs> there I was in a great big hot tub, all warm and gushy and well fed. And the next thing I know, the bottom dropped out, a great big splash happened. Then the next thing I know, Dr. Young was holding me up by the hills and beating my ass. Well, I let out a yell so loud that I didn't shut up until I was 35. <laughs> and watched Swan Monk. <laughs> and we all kind of go through that. We just start yelling and we don't shut up. This happened in Shawnee, Oklahoma. Uh, my grandfather, uh, <laughs> takes a little while to talk about him. He was a really old man when I met him. He always wore a three-piece suit, he smoked a pipe, and he ran a business. The business that he ran was hot water heaters. And my dad was a lackey in the back room, dressed in overalls, putting asbestos by the heat pools into a spiral around the uh, uh, hot water tanks. Uh, and I could see that. And later I began to understand why that my grandfather was 100% total best kind of Oklahoma racist that you could find total KKK. White Hood, the whole show. Really? Absolutely. Shotguns and he actually had a whole lot of Indian mer- uh, paraphernalia. Huh. Beads and, and uh, uh, bows and arrows and headdresses and all of that kind of stuff. Which kind of fits into the story because after he died I got all of that stuff. And it was only later to find out that the problem between my grandfather and my dad was that my dad was a half-breed. He was the product of an Indian girl. And when my grandfather died, my dad was completely disinherited. Really? Mm. The only thing we got out of that was a bunch of Indian stuff. (laughs) Sort of my grandfather's last uh, hurrah. So, Do you know um, what tribe? Pardon? Do you know what tribe his mother was from? Uh, no, I personally don't, because in that area, I mean, that was the collection point. We're talking about uh, the land rush of uh, 1893 
my dad born in uh, the same year that Bhikkhu Buddhadasa was born, by the way, which is 1906. And uh, uh, my dad was really clear to share a lot of history. He would take me to rodeos because the Indians would do the halftime at the rodeos in Oklahoma back then with their fancy feathers and dancing and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, so after my grandfather died when I was in the first grade, and by the way, on, on a side point, was that uh, he paid for the new school that I went to. And they had done that within the past 10 years. From the time that I, uh, around the time that I was born or a few years before that, the hair or the tornado came and destroyed the, the school. And so my grandfather, being big guy in town, rebuilt the school and the teachers remembered that and they treated me like I was the grandson of the guy who gave them this building okay which was completely different later so um, my dad then started to work as a projectionist big movie theaters back in the early 1950s. In the town that we were in, we had seven. And he worked at all of them because it was the same syndicate. And so he was a projectionist and uh, every day after school I would go down to whatever theater he was in at the time and got to, uh, as best he had let me, play with all of the equipment in the projection booth. including. So I learned all about the projectors and how they operated and the uh, uh, power supplies and all of that kind of stuff. And later I used that information to understand how the mind works. And I often use the way the projector is for people to understand that um, when you're watching a, an old film from back in the 1950s, they ran 24 frames a second, but the screen was only lit up half the time for a twenty-fourth of a second, and then it went black, and then you got another frame, then it went black, then you got another frame, and so half the time of those twenty-four frames a second, it was either black or white, 45, 48 time change. And the reason that that happened was because they had to stop the film and then display it on the screen and then turn it black and then move the film. That's why it's called shutter, you know, they, they call it a flick yeah. because this thing flickers, right? It's, it's a chattering kind of machine. So that whole point is, is that that's how our mind works. That we'll take an image and then we'll go blank. And then we'll do something and then we'll go blank. Now that I understand Paticca Samapada, I say, yes, that's exactly how Paticca Samapada works, that we're only looking with our eyes for part of the time, and then the rest of the time we're processing it, trying to make sense out of it. And while we're doing that, we're not looking at what's going on. Mm -hmm. And so that's a very interesting way of um, uh, seeing it from those old projectors, that they're not on all the time. They're only on part of the time. The rest of the time, they're getting ready for the next show, the next image. Yeah. And so I learned a lot about that. My mom then eventually wanted to go back to North Carolina, where her home was, and that really destroyed my life. 
started at about the age of eight. And it went from King of the Hill to New Kid in Town. And that happened over and over and over again. Mm. Uh, until high school in Dillon, South Carolina, where I graduated. It was in seven different schools. Wow. But there's no need to talk about any of that. I mean, it's just old history. It's interesting. And like you said, it shows some of the seeds of your understanding, the reference points that you have. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why it's interesting. Well, if I have a reference point in that regard, my reference point is the southern United States, from Oklahoma, Texas, Georgia, North and South Carolina, are the states that I'm most familiar with are ignorantly hardcore racists. They do not understand how racist they are. And they do not want to hear it from those who are not racist. They mm -hmm. say, what, me not, I'm not racist. And the whole culture is built on racism. Do you think that's still the case today? It's more the case now than it was in the 1950s. It's worse now than it was before. Mm. It's getting more racist. Can you explain that? Explain what? How it is racist and how it's becoming more racist. Ah, it's racist because racism is a natural outcome of a hierarchy. And Western uh, society is based on hierarchy. That you're better than the man that you step on. Otherwise, if you were the same as him, you wouldn't step on him. But you got to get to the top, and the only way to get to the top is by stepping on people. And the people that you step on, you're racist with, and the people who step on you are racist with you. It's just that simple. It uh, comes out of the instinct, the territorial instinct. Just like, like these dogs here uh, are territorial with a real territory because they're still using their instinct for the real purpose and so dogs are territorial. Humans are more territorial but our territory is our mind, what we know, our intellectual property, who we are is our territory and what kind of territory so we want to have friends who have the same territory that we do which would be if you're a Democrat, you want to have Democrats. You don't want to be a Democrat in the sea of Republicans. So you got to go along to get along. That's why the racism continues, is because everybody is so racist, somebody who comes in who's not racist, he has to become racist in order to fit in, and if he doesn't, they're all going to be racist towards him. But I actually experienced that quite heavily on, in several occasions, the number one time that I remember was uh, in Dillon, uh, where I had a couple of friends, but they were Jewish. The reason that we could be friends was because we could not be friends with any of the people who were, uh, let us say, born and raised in Dillon, mm. right? So Dillon already had its hierarchy, and here outsiders come in, and the only people they could associate with is each other because they're not part of the group. Mm. 
they automatically define what you are by looking at you from a distance because they don't want to get close. Mm -hmm. So skin color, type of clothing that you wear, body shape, all kinds of things will instantly identify you. This is what they call uh, um, at first sight. Mm. You know, they, they use that because we do it. We will make an instant decision about someone without knowing anything about them based upon all these old preconceived ideas that we got from our parents when we were children. Yeah, and skin color is one of those markers, one skin but many one others also. Mm -hmm. But a uh, hundred years ago, the kind of clothing, or let us mm -hmm. say the deeper into the past you go, the clothing made it. Mm -hmm. Now clothing doesn't ma matter so much, but it certainly does if somebody walks in here with a burqa. Mm -hmm. Yep. Especially if he's a transvestite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Interesting. So what was your mother doing? Why did she move from place to place? Well, she caused it, but it was my dad's job basically. He went looking for a job and found one here and found one there and then he got a job uh, with with natural gas but the uh, hot water heaters were already natural gas and propane and so he already knew that industry very well and so his job was to go around putting in the pipes setting up the meters getting the meter reader route set up and then people other than that locals would take over and he would go to the next one mm. and he was the guy who was doing all the ditch digging and doing the big pipe fitting and doing all of that kind of stuff finding the pressure leaks and putting together four furnaces that kind of stuff and he did it for about a year in this town and then he'd go for this town and do it for a year and he'd go to this town and do it for a year like that mm. why do you say your mother caused it well, because she was the one who pulled him out of Oklahoma, which was his home, and his skin color was kind of okay. I mean, they kind of knew that he was a half-breed in Oklahoma, but when he shows up in, in South Carolina, they don't quite know what to do with him. Mm. Do you think your father experienced quite a bit of racism? Oh, absolutely. Really? Even in the company that he worked for. In fact, I remember my mom and my dad commiserating over how badly they treated him. Mm -hmm. Can you think of an example that you can recall? Uh, in the particular one that I'm talking about, uh, it was over his retirement. And he wasn't satisfied with the watch and the retirement and all of that, that somebody else got better than, than he did. Yeah that he was there longer, worked harder, did more stuff, and their retirement was better than his. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Did, you, did you experience racism? Were you seen oh, in that way? Yes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, yes. Every time you go into a new place, you're the new kid on the block. And, and racism is the absolutely it. Mm. You're a foreigner. You don't belong here. Mm. And since the Deep South was already uh, so deeply involved with, with racism uh, over skin color, 
and it didn't matter who you were, you don't belong. Right. Mm-hmm. And we didn't fit in, and that was okay now. That, in fact, that was actually a good way of growing up. Why? Sounds like it was painful, actually, also. Made me strong. Mm. <laughs> I'm thinking now of the song of the boy named Sue. Yeah. Why did his daddy give him the songs, uh, give him the name Sue? Because he had to prove he was a man. <laughs> mm. Did you get into a lot of fights in those days? Was that was violence a part of it? I'm sorry, what? Did you get into a lot of fights in those days? Was violence a part of that? No. No, I didn't. I didn't get, well, twice. Once in the third grade. The other one is in the eighth grade. Hmm. At least I remember their names. I don't remember anybody else's kid's name when I was in the third grade, but there's one guy I remember his name. (laughs) And that was the guy I had to fight with. Did you win? Huh? Did you win? I don't remember that. <laughs> really? I remember this guy's name. Uh-huh. I remember I didn't like it, so I probably lost. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Actually, what I do remember mostly is that I had to prove that I was good enough. And I also had to deal with a lot of jealousy, both mine and others being jealous of me, which a lot of people are not very much aware of. They, they go around feeling jealous of others, but they don't have a strong recognition that a lot of people are jealous of. But I felt that. I felt that there was a lot of jealousy. Mm. What were they jealous of? A lot of stuff. Good at math, remembering, using uh, a lot of different stuff. Mm. <laughs> I think also part of that had to do with uh, uh, often people were jealous of the asshole, and I was an asshole, so they were jealous because I could do things that they couldn't do, and I made them understand that I was better at it than they were. Mm. Which was actually kind of a uh, reverse response to the racism. Mm-hmm. So my response to the racism was by being better than anything that they could do, I could do it better. Yeah. And showing them that. Pardon? And showing them that. And rubbing their face in it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Hmm. What year were you born? 1945. 1945, yeah. 
so I was one of the early baby boomers. Mm -hmm. The war was over in August and I was out within mm -hmm. months. Mm -hmm. <laughs> when you were a kid, what did you think you were going to do? You know, how did you think you were going to be as an adult? What was your expectation at that time? My expectation was a whole lot more about escaping. Mm. That I wanted out of there. That culture. The culture, yeah. right. Mm -hmm. I felt that really strongly in South Carolina, mm. that I really wanted out. But what happened was is that I had the delusion that getting out of the small town in South Carolina and getting to the capital of South Carolina to go to the university there was the escape. Right. No. <laughs> Not by a long shot. And then later the idea was, well, going back to Oklahoma will be the escape, and then Texas. And then I recognized that I was regionally bound. <laughs> That if I wanted to escape, I had to leave that whole area of the United States. And, and basically, I began then to find the relief that I was looking for when I got into Michigan, into Detroit. Now I see on television that whatever it was that infected so deeply the, the South and making so racist, that's hardcore in Michigan nowadays. Really? Mm -hmm. That Michigan is probably as hardcore racist as the Deep South was in the 1950s, while the Deep South is even more racist. What was Michigan like when you got there? Well, it wasn't so much Michigan as it was the twin cities of Ann Arbor and Detroit, because Ann Arbor is only like 40, 50 miles from Detroit. Yes, and it was there that I ran into. In fact, that was kind of the dawning. Uh, I had already gotten into Eric Byrne a couple of years before that, uh, into, into psychology, and when I had the door opened to me to really go in and, and study psychology, I, I went kind of whole hog into doing that for a few years. But along with that came going off with Mad Bear and Chief Demon Logan to the uh, uh, Tuscarora Indian Reservation for three months and studying with Genji the Witch in Detroit and uh, studying under a, a, a master hypnotist for a while and learning how to uh, be a hypnotist. All of that kind of new agey stuff I was into. You studied with a witch? Huh? You studied with a witch? Absolutely, with her own coven and everything. What? Yeah. Tell me about that. Well, her name was Kenya. She was from Vladivostok. And she spoke with a very thick Russian accent. And she kind of reminded me what my illusion of, would be of um, Madame Blosky. Have you yeah. ever heard of, of Madame course, Blosky? Yeah. Right. So she was a Madame Blosky in reality. Wow. And heavy into psychological magic also incantations and other things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but not the kind of prestidigitation magic that is so heavy done in, in India and in Christianity. Yeah. What did you learn from her? Basically that it's all in the mind. Mm 
that's one of the things that I learned from her. Mm. That was the beginning of it. But I kind of already knew that anyway. But mm. I mean, she made a point of it. How did she make that point? By saying it. <laughs> by saying it. Yeah, by saying it. <laughs> I mean, what did you do? Rituals? Was it uh, uh, tarot reading, tea leaves? What uh, curses? Uh, one of the things that I did with her was Tara. Mm. In fact, I was quite good with the Tara cards. Mm. And that what that meant was is that you learn what the Tara cards mean. And then when you spread the tarot cards out, you say whatever you want to say about the person because <laughs> you're reading them, not the card, anyway. Yeah. Was she explicit about that? She was very excellent at it, too. Was she explicit about that dynamic that you just described? I don't remember exactly yeah. Yeah. That, that level of it. Yeah. Wow. So that was when... Also, Muktananda came along. They had an ashram in Ann Arbor, and so I started mm -hmm. spending a lot of time at the ashram. Mm -hmm. I was already, uh, by then, teaching uh, computer science at the Toy Institute of Technology. And so, uh, it was in Ann Arbor and I was in Detroit and I was going back and forth too much and so I tended to spend more time at the ashram and that gave me the idea that I would just go to India. Mm. So I still kept my teaching position but I wound up spending about four months a year in India and then back at Ann Arbor at the, at the ashram and, and teaching. So the teaching became very unimportant. Yeah. And after uh, going to India, then I started to go around uh, following all the leads of the names that I heard. Mm. Uh, on the train to Bangalore, I met an Indian woman who spoke fairly good English. And in our conversations, she invited me to go to her house. She lived in Bangalore, and she obviously, because of our conversation, knew that I was going to see such and such other. And while I was at her house, she pulled out an old newspaper out of a big stack of newspapers. She went down through it and found it. And this newspaper was a big, big exposition that the local newspaper had done on Sacha Sai Baba. And it was page after page after page of big newspaper you're talking about here, with photo after photo after photo to where they had the, the news people had gone and photographed all of the stuff that he was, sleight of the hand stuff that he was doing and exposed him in the local newspaper. That was in the early 1970s, and still millions of people were following him by the time I saw him, about 1976, and when he died in the 90s, he still had even more millions of followers, so it didn't matter that people knew that he was a charlatan. That didn't matter. He was still, he built a hospital, he did all kinds of really nice things. Mm. But people believed him because of his magic show. Mm. We were talking about Muktananda earlier, and I said that um, I made the remark that uh, he was uh, well known for his Shaktipat, 
Yeah. And I thought, and uh, you said that actually he was. Um, that was true, but he, you consider him to be a hardcore yogi. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you say something a little bit about that? What was your experience at that time with Muktananda? Was it a lot about the Shakti part, him coming and blasting people with that? Uh, was that what, what it was all about, or was there a different orientation there? Well, yes, but you have to understand the quality of the Shakti part in relationship with placebos. So, if you're all sitting there in anticipation while he's going through the crowd and doing his chanting and doing that, and it's all the way, by the way, it's rose water. Yeah. I mean, they really, really pack the roses into it, so it's got a huge aroma. And when that stuff hits you, it's cold, it's wet, it's sweet, it's nice, and all of the stories you pack in there and that placebo effect takes over and you feel absolutely marvelous and wonderful. And you got to give him credit for being able to do that to people. <laughs> Is it real? Sure. Is it stage magic? Yep. The feelings that people have are real. But the stage magic is all of that other stuff. As I mentioned before, I've been around a lot of Shaktipat ceremonies. Almost all of them were Buddhist, not Hindu. Mm. Because of uh, the fact that I lived in the Cambodian monastery in the Cambodians. They really liked that Shaktipat stuff. Mm. But it's just a ceremony. And if you're sitting there with the idea, hmm, I don't believe any of the stuff this guy's doing. Let him come by and sprinkle his stuff and everybody gets giddy. When he hits me, it's not going to do anything. And then when he hits you with it and it doesn't do anything, and then you say, there, there's nothing to it. <laughs> but if you're sitting there with all kinds of anticipation, oh, he's going to get me, he's going to get whack, ooh. You're doing it to yourself, yeah, is what you're do saying. Do it to yourself, exactly. <laughs> it's all in one's own mind. Yeah. So mastery of placebo is some way towards understanding how the mind works. Mm -hmm. If you understand how placebos work, you actually understand how the mind works, because that's what the placebo is. It's the way that the mind works, given a piece of information, and what we want to do with it. Mm. So from a certain point of view, the Dharma of Muktananda is not so different to, it comes from a different angle, but not so different to the supramundane Dharma, in at least this aspect. You've got a point that I can't take away. But I can say that uh, the kind of ceremonies that have that kind of Shaktipat, and people have those kind of feelings and whatnot, they attribute it to Muktananda and the ceremony and the Shaktipat and all that's happening, and they don't actually realize that they did it with their own mind. The actual noble dharma, and in fact you see ordinary Buddhism with exactly the same kind of thing. The, the noble dharma is for you to realize hmm. that you created this on your own anyway. 
with your own attitudes. That's the important point. That's what makes it noble, is that knowledge. Mm. But it didn't come from the outside, it came from the inside. That you cured yourself at that moment. Which means that the next time that you feel blue, you could cure yourself again. And sometimes all you need to do is remember that Mutananda sprayed you with rose water. And you can remember that he sprayed you with rose water and feel that again. In fact, we use that as a technique in Anapanasati anyway, is to go remember a really good experience that you had and then recreate that in your mind because you can. Mm. So it can be quite playful and creative, mischievous almost, one's own way of relating to it. Is that fair to say or is that, am I going to... I can't think of any more noble way of saying it than that. Yes, it is playful. It is, in a way, even mischievous. Uh, because the mischief is all about recognizing that the rules were there to be broken in the first place anyway. I mean, why have a rule? If everybody keeps the rule, there's no reason for it to be a rule. The only reason that it's a rule is because it's broken. So in order to enforce the rules, we've got to go break it. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, people will just forget all about the rules. <laughs> Is that the shoot there? That's uh, the best I can come up with at the moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very interesting. <laughs> so, the uh, I like that. Yes. But the whole point of it being playful, that's the best part. Because we have, uh, if we say something is really, really great, really good, really, really magnificent, then we almost always have to add to that an extra thing, and that is, therefore, it's important. Right. And sometimes we put the importance on it because this moment was so valuable and so wonderful that it's better than other moments. Rather than recognizing, no, these moments are all exactly the same, I chose to make this moment super special. Mm -hmm. Okay. And when we recognize, no, I'm the one who chooses whether a moment's going to be super special or not, then that makes that super special not important anymore. But a lot of us in Western Buddhism have the idea that a mystical experience is an important thing. No, it's not important. It's only important because we think it's important. And if we would recognize that, that that's what happened, that we made it important, then we have the choice of making it not important. Hmm. Making it ordinary. Let's go have a few more. So it, seem, it seems like from what you're saying that if one has that, perspective, then there's no reaction one can have or uh, experience one can have that isn't more fuel on the bonfire of that perspective. In other words, one can... Everything's the Dhamma. The Dhamma yeah. is everything. Yeah. 
you, in, you in, can even think something's great. And no, in noticing that you're creating that, you're reinforcing this perspective. So it doesn't really matter what you're experiencing from the point of view of that perspective. Is that fair or? Well, if you're, if you remember right. to see it that way. Right. But we're not in the habit of seeing it like that. We're in the habit of seeing things the way that we were trained. That we weren't, we didn't. We were trained by ordinary people to live an ordinary life. And ordinary people are looking for things that are special. If you live a noble life, if you were raised by nobles, when you expect everything to be noble, then there's nothing special. Because there's this idea, I think, that uh, a noble person should be a certain way, have a certain... Oh, you're going to put rules on nobility. Right, gotcha. <laughs> right. But what you're talking about is not, not like that at all. Anything goes. Mm. Uh, ah, I wouldn't say anything goes because a way of talking about it instead is, is that we change the rules from a million-page rule book full of rules, page yeah. after page after thou shalt not do this, thou shalt not spit on the sidewalk, thou shalt not spit on the grass, thou shalt not spit, thou shalt not swallow your spit. You know, there's just no end to the rules. What mm -hmm. am I going to do with this stuff? Mm -hmm. <laughs> because there's a rule someplace against doing whatever I would do with it. And so we take these 10,000 rules and we replace it with an important one rule. That in fact we could call it important only in a sly, kind of sneaky, um, mischievous way. Mm. And that is the one rule of Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda, which is the entire teaching of the Buddha. So that's the new rule, that's the new way of looking at it, that we don't operate according to a set of rules anymore, we operate according to what's the least amount of dukkha that we can have right now. Or what's another way of saying it, which is also a mischievous way of saying it, is what's the easy way out? <laughs> Let's take the easy way out every time. So if two people are arguing over there, and I don't like what they're doing, if I get up and go get into the argument, that's a lot of trouble. But if I sit here saying, huh, never mind, that's the easy way out. Okay, so we learn to take the easy way out because we can see that the hard way is dukkha. And it may be what we want, but when we see that what we want is a lot of work, it is a whole lot easier to not want anything and go through the work of getting it. So, with that, we have just one rule. Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda, and it's only to be applied right now. So here's an example of that. You're driving down the road, and the lights, let's say you're driving down the road in America, which means you're on which side of the road. In any case, you're being stopped by, or uh, he wants you to stop because you can see the lights yep. and the siren behind you. You've heard my story about that. What are you going to do with a cop? who is uh, pulling you over, right? We can either find a whole lot of rules or we can follow that one rule of Duca Naroda, Duca Duca Naroda, and we can handle that cop fine. 
But if we start following other rules, like cops are dangerous, you better be careful. They'll bust you. Don't let them look in your car. Don't let them, don't question. Always take the Fifth Amendment. Don't tell them anything. Don't offer anything. You know, there's a whole lot of rules. I mean, you see those kind of rules all over the internet. Yeah. But if we don't follow any of those rules, we only follow the rule of Duca, Duca, Naroda, then we can become friends with the cop, just like you and I are sitting here being friends. And the, uh, the cop comes up to the window, and we roll the window down and says, Hi, officer. I'm so glad to see you. I've heard that you're doing a great job out here, and that your police force is well known for um, uh, enforcing the law very well. And I really appreciate it. And I'm really glad that you're out here enforcing the law and doing your job. What can I do to help you? Right? Mm -hmm. So we start off the easy way. With that, the cop's probably going to just give you a warning ticket or nothing at all. But if you, if you start off being angry, uptight, upset, I didn't do anything wrong, officer, why are you stopping me? You're going to get him angry. They expect that. Mm -hmm. So, that little rule of Duca, Duca, Naroda will work in every case, which basically means the easy way out is to make friends with whoever you're with. Because having a fight's a lot of work. <laughs> having an argument is just so much work, and nobody likes it. So if we would follow that one rule, but a lot of us have the other rule. You see, we've got a rule say you got to be right, mm. or the old rule that I had: you got to be better than everybody else. Right? Now we don't have that rule. We forget all about the rules, and then we can handle every moment correctly and properly because we're managing it right here, right now. The easy way out. Hmm. What about when you encounter somebody who, and there are some people it seems like this, who wish to take advantage of you or exploit you in some way? Perhaps they're not amenable to oh, friendliness. I guess that would where uh, good old investigation would come in so that you're sly. Uh, could be the word wary. Um, I'm actually thinking now about uh, Achan Mahaboa in uh, uh, Udon Thani. I went to Udon Thani because of him, that he was Thailand widely known to be an Arahat. Hmm. Just accepted just off the bat. Anybody knows an Arahat in Thailand, he's the guy, he's it. So I went to see him and was there actually by the time that he had, uh, he had actually was quite ill and died with him oh a few months after I first met him but the, here's one of the things that he is actually on YouTube his talk is about it's in Thai but it's got uh, subtitles in English does an air hot cry that's, in, that's uh, the whole point and what he's talking about, does an Arahat cry, is 
anyone who correctly observes the mess that humanity is in will cry. I mean, it's really a downright shame that humans are as uh, suffering as they are. In this talk, by the way, he uh, uses the Thai word ki, which, uh, like kiburi, is the ash of a cigarette, or ki nu prick is uh, uh, prick is a, a, a chili that's the size of a rat turd. That's why it's called ki nu prick. <laughs> that's what it is, is rat turd chili. Okay, and so he actually is using the word ki, and it's translate well is, is that. Uh, our Western society, or actually society, human society in general, is a toilet of shit. That's what our society is. It's just a toilet of shit. Well, how are we going to deal with that? One way of dealing with it is to see the absent uh, disgust that humanity has gotten themselves into. But another way of looking at it is, is that, yeah, and every one of them is that in that system is out for himself and he is out there spreading his shit. Be careful. That's what we're getting at, back to your question now, is, is that we automatically expect for charlatans to be charlatans. Watch what you're doing. I've got a lot of examples of the stuff that I bought off the internet of, uh, for instance, um, uh, uh, flash drives that mm. are advertised at 250 gigabytes. They're right. actually only 31 gigabytes. Really? They're sold at 250 gigabytes and you can start putting data on that drive, but it'll eventually get rotten. But if you know what you're looking for and how to specify it, you can say, yeah, I know that drive. Well, I've encountered quite a lot of them. But I know that that's what's happening. I know if I'm going to buy it for that price, I also know the limits of technology. I know these kind of things. So if I'm buying a drive that's advertised at 250 gigabytes, then I know that they do not manufacture drives like that at 250 gigabytes, that this is a sham then I can be happy when I get it. I did get scammed. I knew it. I knew in advance I was getting scammed, but I bought it anyway. Because even if it's not 250, I can still use it as a 31 gigabyte or 32 gigabyte drive. But I know its limits, and I still bought it at about the price of a, two, of a 32 gig. so I didn't lose anything. Mm -hmm. But you can imagine somebody who's lost a lot of data and they're hating it because the, the drive, they, they were in a scam and yeah. they thought it was a big drive and it turns out destroying the data by writing over it and all of that kind of stuff. So if you expect to be caught in a scam, then when you do get caught in a scam, you can lap it off easily. You know that this is all just a bunch of crap. It's a bunch of scam. <laughs> we live in a scam-filled world and everybody is out there scamming everybody else. That's the society that we live in. It's okay that you get scammed from time to time. We can get over that too. Yeah, we're going to get scammed. But if you're smart, if you're, not, maybe not the word smart, but let us say observant. Maybe if you're 
paying close attention and and uh, weighing in all the factors, then you can see a scam when it comes. And then if you do that enough, then you can see the telltale signs of the scam. Like for instance, if you see somebody uh, with a fold-up table on the streets of London with three cards on that table, <laughs> you do not have to go up to him to find out if he's pulling a three-card Monty on you. You can see that from a distance because you are you've seen that. You've been there, done that. Okay, so this is the way that we're beginning to understand is, is that if you can see that the world that we live in is a toilet full of shit, then when you put your hand in that toilet, you're going to have a handful <laughs> of shit when you come out of it. Be aware that that's what's going on, and you can have and you can handle it happily. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> and Mahaboa was right. Sometimes you just want to cry as to how bad things are, and then the rest of the time you can just play with it like a toy. Hmm. Donald Trump's got a joke, and the joke is uh, that an old woman found a snake aside of the road that had been out in the sun too long and was sick. It was a poisonous snake, but she took pity on it, and so she took the snake home and she nursed it back to his health, and as soon as it got better, it bit her. And she says, why did you bite me? I took you in, and I fed you, and I took care of you. And the snake looked after her, and he says, you knew I was a snake when you took me in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You knew I was a snake when you took me in, and yet you expect me to not behave like a snake, even be and you do so because you thought that you took care of me, that I'm going to change. Okay, so beware when you take care of a snake that it still might bite you. Then in fact this is a very, very good introduction or segue into the triple gem. Surely you've heard of the triple gem. Of course. All right. And in Western Buddhism, I think you've heard me talk about this, that in Western Buddhism we don't have the whole set of gems. Yeah. That all we've got is a lust for Buddha and a bit of knowledge for the Dhamma, but we don't have the Sangha. Right. Because yeah. we live in a toilet full of shit and we don't have a way of finding good friends that we can really share the Dhamma with. That's one of the reasons why I value my friendship with you, is because you're looking at it from a much more noble position. Okay, so we begin to develop noble friends. That this was like, like I was saying about Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, that he was actually brought into the noble community that already existed in Bangkok or in Thailand. Uh, that he didn't have to invent it himself, that there was not only the noble Sangha, but just the, the Thai Wats in general is intentionally friendly rather than, like most universities in America, our businesses are intentionally competitive. That in fact the mindset of the Westerner is almost always intentionally competitive. What can I get out of this? My degree and my diploma and my paycheck and all of that. 
But the Buddha teaches that really the whole Dhamma is really about friendship. But the friendship is both internal and external. Internal in the sense that we become unified whole within our own mind and having this samadhi mind and being friends with all of our components inside, playful, mischievous. And when we get that going within, then we can begin to deal with the world that way too, but the best way to do it is by practicing with people who are in that position also. The noble dhamma uh, means uh, that uh, we practice nobility together as a group. That it, I have seen many, many cases, almost strangely so, that this, this guy who is a monk, he doesn't bother doing any meditation, he doesn't do it doesn't go to the chain. It doesn't do anything that you would expect for a monk to do or any Buddhist to get anything out of Buddhism. And yet, but just being in the Sangha and just hanging out with other monks over a period of years, he becomes noble naturally, just by fitting in. You know, we talked about that earlier, that the, uh, the instinct, the nesting instinct, and the, um, the territorial instinct has to do about being in a tribe and fitting in and doing what you're supposed to do. We're social animals, they say. You know, society and socialism, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, social security, mm -hmm. there's no end to this word social, which actually is an instinct that we have, an instinct of community. But if you're in a community of thieves, you're going to be a thief. If you're in a community of drunks, you're going to be a drunk. If you're in a community of nobles, you're going to be noble. That's what the Sangha is all about, is bringing in and having a noble Sangha or noble friends. And that's something that I see a lot of people who are looking into Buddhism, they think that they can find all of they, what they need in a book. Mm. But really when they get a book, all they get is white paper and black ink. That's all they've got. Everything else is mental in their own mind. But when you've got a real teacher, now you've got an interaction, you've got an interplay. He can give you things non-verbally that you can't get out of a book. But then there's the camaraderie and the friendship that you certainly are not going to get out of a book. But you can by having friends. And if friends see each other as friends, and they're both friends in the Noble Dhamma, then they can help each other, because nobody takes anything personally anymore. You see, if we take things personally, then the personality actually goes against our society. That's what capitalism is all about, and that's why there's kind of a war between capitalism and socialism is because capitalism is all selfishness, all me, 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 and my, 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 and how much money can I get from you, and what can I lie to you about to get your money so that I'll be happy. <coughs> to where socialism, in its more uh, pure form, is, hey, I've got enough here, you want some? Let's be friends. I've got enough, we can share. But we don't have that in our society. In fact, many people hate socialism. 
because they only can see value in capitalism. And that makes even having friends difficult for people. A lot of people have no friends, not any real friends, because they wind up competing with anybody that could be a friend. But when we learn that we could be friends, that's when the Dhamma is actually fulfilled. Living alone is not the fulfillment of the Dhamma. This, uh, it's when we can live happily with others. That's fulfilling our, um, our instinctual nature. Mm. And so we find the watch that way. They're, they're communities. And uh, they're communities based in honesty and openness. And I find that uh, the Westerners are not interested in honesty and openness because they see that as exposure. Exposure to the dirt. And we're not supposed to have dirt. We've got rules about dirt. <laughs> and because we're not supposed to expose the dirt, we wind up lying about it. The dirt being? Trying to protect the self. Mm. But when we're in, in a community of, of, of friends and Sangha, then we don't have to worry about protecting ourselves because there's really nothing worth protecting. That friendship is more important than protection. And so now the question would be, well, how can we foster Sangha in the West? Because right now, Western Buddhism doesn't have much Sangha. Mm -hmm. What we have instead is this guy's got a retreat center, that guy's got a book, this guy's got a whole bunch of books, this guy's got a great big meditation retreat center. This guy's got a red light district he calls a retreat center. <laughs> yeah. But you're building Sangha. Lately I've noticed something new you're doing. Yes, that's the idea is uh, that not having each of the students who come to me and talk to me individually, but rather they should be talking to each other. If I can get two guys talking Dhamma together for an hour, that's two hours I didn't have to spend talking to them <laughs> about <true>. Dhamma. <laughs> so now you, you're uh, part of your channel on YouTube and your online activities, I suppose. You've got a US version and a UK version, right? Mm -hmm. And they just get together and they chat with each other, right. modeling that. Uh, and then you upload those those conversations and sometimes you're there and but oftentimes you're not there they just get together without you yes that, that's the whole point is fostering yeah. to get together without me they have their own videos mm -hmm. without me there yeah whose idea was that was that your idea yeah hmm. well I think it was the Buddha's idea actually he just didn't have uh, 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 okay. YouTube as an example yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a new thing that you're, that you're, well, it's a new thing that's happening on your channel, isn't it? Relatively speaking. I'm sorry, what? It's a new thing that's happening uh, on your channel, relatively speaking. You've talked a lot about the need for Sangha. Yes. But now it seems that Sangha is happening more and more with the people that are used to talking with you one-on-one. -on -one. 
it seems to be. Uh, yes. I, I've noticed it. Mm. Thank you for noticing. Um, that what I would like to see is the people who are joining and becoming part of the Sangha that is by the way most active in there's some activity on Discord but most of it is on Skype and anybody who wants to join can join um, we have videos together that are scheduled we have impromptu videos and then a lot of it is just traffic that people will see something on the internet and they'll take a short clip of it and put it on uh, the uh, the Skype for everybody in the group to enjoy or maybe it's a photo. Uh, the things that I like uh, that I'm most pleased with is when they'll post something from uh, say Titnahan or some unknown guru that uh, the quotation that they put there uh, is identical to something that I've already said in the group before somebody's heard it and then they see another teacher saying the same thing and they'll bring it in. Mm -hmm. That's that's good. The normal reaction in the West would be, oh no, he's just copying, don't worry about what he's had to say, you listen to me. Yeah. But the reality of the Sangha is, is that all of these teachers are really teaching the same thing. There is nothing that Tetnahan has ever taught that I would not agree with. Same thing with Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, we just each one has their own style. Mm. But the but the Dhamma is the same. Mm. It's liberating everywhere. Uh, the Buddha talks about it in the sense that there are many, many different rivers, but they all wind up in the sea. And the taste of the sea is one. And just as the taste of the sea is salty, so is the Dhamma has one taste. Everywhere you go, the taste of the Dhamma is a sweet taste. Whether you go to Palm Village, or Watsuanmok, or Dhammasala, if you go there for the right stuff, you'll get the right stuff. And it's the same everywhere. Mm -hmm. But we have the idea almost about enlightenment is it's a competition. Not only do I have to get enlightened, I've got to get enlightened before you do. <laughs> Well, let me ask you one last question, then, because... Only one last question? Yeah. Oh my goodness, it's all over now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been great visiting you, Damrata, I must say. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for letting me come and, and see you. Um, my last question is, why, why do you do it? Why do I do what? I'm not doing anything. Well, you're... I'm scratching the dog, that's yeah. what I'm doing. Why you, do I do that? Because you spend all this time talking to people uh on skype you know you don't get paid for this you're i can i came to visit you and you have as much time as i'm willing to spend basically it seems um, else yeah why do you why do you do it because it's fun it's enjoyable sometimes while i'm speaking to an individual I have a flash of a thought. Oh gosh, I'm saying the same thing the 19,000th time again, over and over and over. I keep saying the same thing to these guys. What's the point? But that thought doesn't last very long. Doesn't last very long. And then I'll just continue what I'm talking about. So yeah, there are thoughts of why bother? 
But the answer to that is, is that number one, it's not a bother. If I've said it a hundred times, I can say it a hundred uh, one more time, and the only time that I have to say it again is right now. Who cares about what the future is going to be? So we can say it again. Also, there's a lot of joy in the waking up. It's really, really interesting to watch someone in the process of insight. That <gasps> kind of reaction. Mm -hmm. That happens so often. Yeah. I'm almost addicted to it. That's my that's, that's my drug is watching people get blown away by what I'm saying. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes. Well, you do these talks with people and you number them. So actually, people have ten, twelve talks. Forty. Yeah, on the YouTube, mm -hmm. and uh, sometimes you know one of the most interesting ones I saw was actually I'm thinking of a couple it's a category I think of, of, of videos you've got where someone has talked with you for a while and they go away for a year or two and they come back mm -hmm. to check in with you and uh, that happens a lot. yeah those are interesting those are interesting because they've had some time to um, I suppose for it to really sink in, Soak in yeah right. and then they come back and they're saying it in their way you know, you talk about Bhikkhu Buddha Das has got a way, Thich has a way, you've got a way. And then you begin to see the uh, embryo of their way. Isn't that's that quite delightful? interesting. It's quite I mean, interesting. It's just so magnificent to yeah. see other people actually getting the Dharma. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that, in fact, that is even more enjoyable than the first time and uh, when I can see that. Achan Po was as pleased with my Dhamma practice as I was. And now I can see it the other, from the other mm -hmm. side that yes, the teacher gets a really big kick out of watching the students succeed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting to see that uh, dialogue of. And to know that they're getting it. Yeah. That the Dharma is the 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 Dharma of the Buddha is not dead. It's yeah. not. Well, they got it from you, but they come back with their own. With full of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's interesting that. It's interesting that. It's it's you're you're. It seems graduating. Um, people. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a very famous thing to happen. Is the students go back to visit the the, the teacher? I mean, once the. Uh, let us say, uh, the scientist who is studying rubber in the university, once he gets it, now he is Mr. Dunlap. Yes. <laughs> and he comes back to that old professor to, uh, uh, to renew that relationship. Hey, without you, Mr. Old Professor, we wouldn't have Dunlap tires. We wouldn't have it. It was because of your helping me to discover Rubber. Right. So that's that's the way. And um, there's a side point that I will make about that. This happened. I did an interview with with one. Of, I guess you could call it one of your competitors on uh, uh, YouTube. And he um, uh, posted the the video, but he put an ad in the front. You know, some people have paid yeah, ads. Yeah, yeah. And so I go to to see this thing, and of all things, there's a paid ad done by John Cabot Zen himself. 
Well, you see, I was into, uh, at one time back in the late 1990s when I was uh, hanging out at, at what, uh, 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 Fremont with uh, Achan Pusert. And there was someone who came and then we got involved and I went to his thing and whatnot. And he was already very much into the mindfulness-based stress reduction. Yeah. And over the time of the conversations that I had with him and whatnot, I recognized that these guys don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> and so I kind of left. Well, now fast forward 20 years, 25 years later, and I see John Cabot Zen on this ad, and he sounds just like me. And I says, where did you get this stuff? Where did you get joy? Where did you get, I mean, you used to do a go-wanka thing where people do the body scanning while they're laying down. I assume that they're still doing that. And here he comes with uh, uh, basically Anapanasati. And my first thought was, where did he get that? Not in the sense that he is stealing or plagiarizing, but more in the sense that the noble dharma is actually getting publicized. It's actually getting out. That it's, that it's open. It's, it, it's uh, what Bhikkhu Buddhadasa was looking for, and that's actually out there on the internet. It's open and available now. It's almost like my job is done here. I don't have to do anymore because, I mean, John Gavin Zinn is doing my job for me now. <laughs> and so that's, that's immensely gratifying to know that the teachings are not just kept by the students who uh, are doing the, the interviews with me, yeah. but because of the videos. Who knows who sees those videos? I mean, some of them have a thousand or two or three. I think, in fact, one of the videos that our first one we did together has got, what, 15, mm -hmm. 16,000? Yeah, at views. least, yeah. Who watched that video? <laughs> John Cabot's end and Junior Junior Junior. And so I figure if the if the noble Dhamma is getting out like that, then that part of the job is done. Now the job to do is to add the third triple gem and start talking about. Let's start having. If you're getting success out of your um, own personal meditation, then start to share that with others. Go find other people who are getting benefit out of their meditation and start talking Dhamma to each other. Mm -hmm. That the more Dhamma that we have, the more Dhamma that we share, the more mind moments that we spend on the Dhamma, is fewer mind moments we're spending in unwholesome thoughts. So just by itself, it's a wholesome thing to do. Mm. But as one progresses, if you can call it progression, in the sense of the sotapan, the sotapan is the one who is so immersed in the Dhamma, he doesn't care about much of anything else. That that's what he's into. So if he's into that, he wants to talk about it, and so he wants to find people to talk to who wants to talk about that. But there's no reason to talk to uh, um, a store owner, say, on Copenhagen. I want to go to the bot and talk to the bot. That's who I want to go talk to. <laughs> so that's the way of looking at it is that we become devoted to the Dhamma 
but not in a devotional kind of way, but more of an enthusiastic kind of way, to be enthusiastic and joyful about the, the spread of the Dhamma, because that's what makes it actually interesting to other people, not a dry, boring kind of uh, uh, presentation that can often uh, accompany ritualization. Ritualization mm-hmm. gets dull and mm-hmm. boring to where the actual Dhamma is vibrantly alive when it's among friends. And so we need to have an organization to spread the Dhamma. One of the things that I'm looking at in particular is about teacher training. How are we going to uh, train the next generation of meditation teachers? Right now, if they follow the business model, the only thing that they can do is sign up for a $7,000 course someplace and spend 10 years reading the internet and then get a certificate. I am a Dhamma teacher, or I'm not a Dhamma teacher, they even don't even have that as I am a meditation teacher. But then what's he going to do with that piece of paper? That in a retreat center will make you a meditation teacher. So you got to go build yourself a meditation retreat center. But if to, to do that, now the new student has to become a construction engineer and a manager of a retreat center. And he can't do much Dhamma teaching if he is so involved with the retreat center. So that uh, that's one of the things about the Wat is, is that the monks who are teaching very rarely have anything to do with the operation of the Wat. And generally the operation of the Wat is done by lay people anyway. And so the teachers, all they do is teach. But in the West, the teacher has got to go eat, so they say. Oh, he's yeah. got to eat. You got to pay him. Yeah. Right. So what we need to do is to get the Westerners into the very, very many Asian watts that already exist in the West. When people look and think about Buddhism, they don't look and think about, oh, well, where's the nearest uh, bunch of old men who are sitting around enjoying the heck out of the Dhamma? They think about, well, what bookstore can I go to? Or where on the internet? Let me go to Reddit. I'll learn about Buddhism on Reddit. <laughs> and that's the problem that we have, is that we're going after the the, uh, the bright, shiny objects. We're going after what our c- culture recommends. We're going after what's advertised, rather than after the right thing. So we need to find a way, perhaps with a website or whatnot, and some... Uh, e- newsletters, emails, and whatnot, to get people who, if they really are serious about wanting to become a Dhamma teacher, let's support them by getting them good teachers, getting them with the monks. A lot of people say, oh, I'm going to be a layman, I can't be a monk, as if there was a big difference between the two. But in fact, if you go to any Wat here on the island or any place in Thailand, most of the people that you will see at the Wat are not monks. They're lay people. Even the ones who spend overnight at the Wat. That it's quite easy for uh, Dhamma dudes who are interested in the Dhamma to start visiting the Wat, visit it again, spend the night at the Wat, eat at the Wat, hang out at the Wat, and pretty soon you, you just move in to the Wat. And now you don't have to eat. I mean, you got food. You uh, you don't have to have a job. 
for the room and board. So we could set that up because I know several hundred monks in the United States and in Asia as well as a uh, wider connection. You see all of these monks, these old monks, they know each other already. There's already a network. Then hmm. we can tap right into that network. I've already got some friends that are uh, partly in that network. We've got Westerners, in fact, with Robert and uh, uh, Marcus. We've got actually five guys, Westerners, who all here live in Thailand and know the Thai way of doing things and we can help on the internet get these Westerners associated with the Watts because after a while they'll, the, the student will say, well let's do a weekly meditation class and the monks say, yeah, let's do that and then a few months later they say, well let's do a weekend retreat and the monks will say, yeah, let's do that, and we'll support it. We'll get people to give the food and everything, and we can do all of this grassroots times three or four hundred, because we've got three or four hundred watts that we can move people into. All we need now is to find three or four hundred people who really want to be meditation teachers, who can find um, uh, the freedom to actually devote their life to it. If you really, really want to become uh, devoted to the Dhamma, you don't have to do it the traditional way, and we certainly don't want to do it the Western way. But there's this middle path that we can take that is actually quite Asian already, mm. that people can, in fact, um, gain a great deal about that. So um, that's one of the things that I wanted to introduce, and we can talk about this later about the various things that we can do. Um, but the, the target audience right now would be established teachers who were competing with each other to break them into Sangha. We can do that with Zoom, we can do it with... Uh, uh, you, you already know quite a lot of these guys. One of the things that I would recommend is for you to start doing groups like we have. You know, do eight or ten of you guys that's already done interviews with you. That you've got the uh, uh, the jumping <laughs> athlete, I forget, Yang, and... Um, uh, uh, well, we're doing some of that. You're talking, you're talking to Daniel Ingram a lot, and uh, yeah, yeah we're, uh -huh. getting, we're getting groups of four or five together uh, to do things. That's what I would recommend yeah. is for the established teachers and the ones that you're knowing, let's all be friends together mm -hmm. rather than competing with each other. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's the idea that I have with the Sangha. Oh, mm -hmm. just one of our friends. <laughs> you wouldn't believe how many animals live in this house. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been great. So let's finish this off now, and I really do appreciate it. Yeah. And we'll talk about Sangha later, but that's, yeah. the, that's the thing. I, I'm saying, I'm, I'm beginning to have the point of view is my work with the Dhamma is done now. It's out. The cat's out of the bag. I don't have to keep pushing cats out of the bag now. <laughs> Let's get a different cat this time, and the new cat is the Sangha itself. Mm -hmm. If we can get people to make friends with themselves on the inside through meditation, then we can help them become friends on the outside non-competitive uh, cooperation. Well, I wish you the best of luck with that. Pardon? I wish you the best of luck with that. 
I'll be okay with it without him. I've already got what I need. <laughs> I'm just trying to say something nice to finish. Okay. Thank you. That was amazing. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.